0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's ANGI.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need
1: parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got
2: fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that
1: makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. <laughs> Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Reek Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you, my friend?
2: <laughs> not Theon <Enrique> <gasps> not, Reek.
1: Not. That's Marine. That's Slaver's Bay. <laughs> that's my Baelish. That's my Baelish. <laughs> the first one was my Jorah, the second one was my my uh little finger, although I don't know if that they're really indistinguishable from each other. That's uh, a
2: good point. Uh, yeah. I yeah. like that mashup. That's that's confusing properly. Slaver's confusing. bay.
1: That's more that's more like little finger, right? Yeah, but, but you then, know what?
2: It kinda they kinda yeah. go hand in hand. You're absolutely right. right.
1: But then Jorah would be like, that's Slavers Bay. <laughs> or it's really more that's marine. You gotta have that that anyway. That's Slavers Bay. That's more. Yeah, Little finger's Not a little bad. You got do. a
2: nice yeah, Peter Baelish I mean, going on over there. Thanks.
1: I'm trying. I, I just love the way he talks because it's so wow, unnecessary. We, so funny. Micah and I keep comparing it to, um, to, uh, Downton Abbey with some of the acting in that, where it's just like over the top. You know, it's so. He made good. a choice. It's so, yeah. He. It's consistent. Give him, give yeah, him credit, right? Definitely, definitely. Hugh Bonneville, of course, the main one of the main characters in Downton Abbey is like a oh, complete overactor. He's so great. Like, you can always tell, like, it's, like, scene, and then he's, like, on. You
2: know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: He, like, turns around at the fireplace or whatever, and it's, like,
2: scene. He's wonderful.
1: How's it going? How's life? Anything to report before we begin our it's good. Game of Thrones Yeah, but
2: I was just thinking about my dream, because this is kind of an event for me. I don't remember my, my dreams very often. And then oh, when I do remember one, as we've talked about on our dream episode many episodes ago, that was many moons ago, but when I do remember one, it's the most surreal Sort of nonsensical thing. So I had this dream. I don't know if it was last night or the night before. Very vivid in my mind when I woke up. Didn't even have to write it down or anything. It was just, it's kind of, and it's kind of like this confluence of two different things that happened in the dream. So it starts out, I win a place in the Guinness Book of World Records for skateboarding. Oh, now, Apparently I had done the most back-to-back tricks of a specific trick without messing up maybe 100 or 200 or something, frontside heel flip for you skate rats out there. Good trick. And actually a trick I could do back in my prime that I was pretty consistent at. It was kind of my stairs and gap flip trick, kind of a go-to for me. And um, I was always just really comfortable with it. So that was kind of funny. And then all of a sudden I was whisked into this other secondary dream where I was in the downtown of a big city. It kind of looked like New York, the midtown of New York a little bit. And it was post-apocalyptic in the sense of not destruction, but there was like three feet of snow. And apparently the snow must have come out of nowhere because all the cars and everything was just abandoned. So there were like cars, think of the road, but without the nuclear dis- destruction. Everybody just had their car, the doors open, left them out on the street. And I guess were seeking shelter. There were no other humans in the dream. And I'm walking down the street, and it's kind of this vanilla sky, midtown, hellscape of snow. And then all of a sudden, these giant snow boulders start raining down, like someone's trying to hit me with them. From the top of the skyscrapers. And I'm like, what the hell? So I start running, and I notice a semi-truck, like an 18-wheeler that's abandoned there with the cab. The door to the cab open. so I jump in there. And now these giant snow and ice boulders are hitting the truck, and I'm sort of ducking for cover. And I'm, I'm thinking in my head, like, if these things hit me, it could be the size of like a, like a regular snowball. But if they hit me from this height, I'm dead. It's, getting, it's like getting hit with a safe, right? Or a piano or something. Right. Terminal and then velocity. I don't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden, I realize that there's people on top of these buildings trying to or attacking me with these, with these snowballs. It turns out to be this running man type game show. So now I have this kind of street league meets running man dream going on. And it started to get upsetting because, you know, when a dream just kind of turns and then you're like, you kind of realize you're in a dream, but you don't want to see what happens if you get hit by one of these things, you know, dying within a dream and all that kind of stuff. So there was a, there was a moment of time where I knew it was a dream. But I kind of stayed in it and then I just sort of woke myself up because I didn't, it was getting a little too hairy and a little too seedy.
1: Right, right. Getting a little in too a scared. To Uncle, in the words of Uncle
2: John. Right. <laughs> in the immortal words of Uncle John. But I thought it was so interesting and it's one of those dreams that even when I'm describing it to you guys, it was so vivid. Like I could feel the temperature, I could hear how quiet it was and that was kind of an eerie thing when you have the big city, but it's just like this pervading quiet. It was really neat. I really enjoy remembering my dreams. It's such a treat because it's very rare that I remember them. And I think because my dreams are so confusing that I kind of lose the thread. And then, you know, one thing just leads to the next. And then it just becomes this conglomeration of, like, ridiculousness. And uh, it was vivid for me. It was. It actually had a setting. It wasn't just some sort of blank canvas in the background like my dreams often are. So I, I was I was excited about it.
1: Well, I'm glad you should write, write these down in a dream notebook. What do you think it means? I don't know. I don't even dare to go down that road. I know. Because I'm not so sure dreams mean anything, but then I, but then I feel like they must mean something. And uh, I've said before, like I have just the same dream over and over again, basically. It's the same type of dream where I'm just urgently trying to go or get somewhere and can never go or get to where I'm going. um, It happens every day, basically. That's so funny. And just different settings, different places, different scenarios, different people always trying to trying to get through a hotel trying to get into a train trying to get to a plane trying to like and it's always just not happening always the same weird. idea different so i feel like it, so i feel like either i'm nuts which it could be or it must mean something you know like there must be more to it but you um, gotta
2: dream something right your mind's kind of sitting there your unconscious is just kind of whirling
1: gotta, i think there's a lot more than we know oh, you know like i, I, I
2: wish we could kind of crack that i really like, do. I, I
1: think just a little your bit. your brain's your brain's regenerating and there is a, like everyone knows like when you're asleep, you're out. No one yeah. can really explain it. You're gone though. Yeah. You know? And uh, so I think there's a lot more to it than that meets the eye. I think it's an exciting uh, course of scientific inquiry. It is a lot of interesting podcasts about it and all the rest. Absolutely. A lot of different theories. What's going on
2: with you, my friend? How you been?
1: I'm fine. I'm, uh, I, I just thought I'd briefly share a, a, this funny anecdote, which is, you know, when you meet a person, it could be like an individual, like a, a like a. a neighbor or whatever or someone at a store like someone and you want this person to like you right? sure have like a good impression of you sure and then you kind of realize that you failed in delivering that but very larry da- larry david s thing so I, I was just thinking we went to the pool store today we have this pool store that we go to to like check our water oh, okay the guys really nice like, oh you bring a sample mom- with you to the place yeah, yeah you bring we'll- a sample oh. this is the thing that they do now you bring a sample and then they tell you specifically what you need and then they Shit. sell you all the different items like That's the shock tech. and all the rest yeah right right and uh so I, we went like maybe almost a month ago and I thought I was like prepared, but I wasn't prepared because like I went into this place, I had my water, but then the guy like started asking me questions. And in thinking back, it's like, why don't I know this? And why did I think I didn't need to know this information? So he was like, how big's your pool? And I'm like, well, it's like, you know, 32 by 16, six feet tall. Yeah, He's like, how many gallons? Oh, I'm like, I'm like, is that important? Like, and he was <laughs> like, he's like, yes, obviously it's important. Now. Some, for some reason in my mind, I was like, no, they'll tell you like just what's going on with your water right which they wouldn't need to know anything about the size of the pool they can just kind of say it. but like to fix the problems they will need to know how big your water is and i don't know why i didn't think of this. Makes so sense. we kind of like guessed and then like i went up and oh, oh the other thing was is that we have like a salt pool like not, not, the big thing now is like putting salt in your pool sure right yeah now I don't know anything. Well, I don't want to say I don't know anything about chemistry, but I'm not. I was never thinking about it as like, oh, salt is just making chlorine. Asshole. Oh, uh, so. So. Okay. OK. He was I was like, yeah, I have like a salt pool as opposed, opposed to a chlorine pool. And he's like, oh, well, you know, it's like the same thing. You know, he's like saying night, But he's like, you yeah, know, it's the same thing. Like you, and he was explaining all these things to me. So I'm like, all right. First of all, I didn't know like the gallonage. I like this guy. I didn't know the gallonage of my pool. Thinks thinks I'm a fucking idiot. Then I don't realize that like salt and chlorine are like the same to the same end. I just thought it was like a different kind of situation. And then he gave us all of these instructions to to put the things in the pool, the various things we needed. And we did. But then, you know, thank God Michael was there listening because I was confused. I was like asking a bunch of questions like, yeah, like I, it says it here, like as I said here and this and so on and so forth. So I made just a, I don't think I made a great impression on this guy. Very nice <laughs> guy. But in my mind, I'm like this guy that probably thinks I'm a fucking idiot. Right. But then I went in today. Yeah. And he recognized us. He asked us how the pool was going. He's very nice to us. Okay. And uh, and we got everything we needed, and um, and we left. And I was like, you know, maybe I didn't leave as a bad of impression. Like we're back on the mend with this guy, this random man who doesn't think about me at all. You know, which so is the best part about, it.
2: despite your poor performance. I hope so. The first, you know,
1: because right, right. So you had I was just to thinking say, about though. that today.
2: You had to say like, I'm new to it's new. I'm new. I'm a new pool owner.
1: Make an excuse. Well, I, I also had to say to him because I was like. The people that built my pool are derelict, right? Like, I don't know anything about it. It works. We had like some other company come over and they look like, yeah, it's totally fine. Okay. But like no one explained how to clean it. No one explained how to use like the the the, the sand. We have like a 300 pound like sand filter and stuff like that. And you have to like. Yeah. that's like, crazy. Shit. You have to do, that? do
2: it like you through yeah. everything.
1: Yeah. And they I just never imagine. did. So the guy was like and then but then the guy was like, you know, I would I would have more to say, but it, it, except for I hear it all the time. Mm. <laughs> was like, Jesus Christ. So about maybe that it was company
2: or just in general,
1: just the just in general, I guess that they like everyone we've ever talked about with pool, like to pools, like any person is like, oh, man, like, I don't know. I didn't know I'm that. Sorry. <laughs> I just didn't know that. Like everyone was like, dude, like every time I bring up, they're like, yeah, dude, two years, three years, just complete calamities. Right. Like and I'm like, oh, maybe I actually dodged a bullet. But nonetheless, I just thought that was funny because. I was just thinking about the guy. And I'm like, I want this guy. Maybe we'll have like a relationship with this guy over the years. And I want him to like me. Sure. You know, I don't believe first impressions are unbreakable. I'm not one of those people that thinks like first impressions are everything, but they're important.
2: Sure. Oh yeah. yeah. I and so it's like, I gotta course.
1: like, I gotta start throwing in some more sophisticated vocabulary. I gotta start maybe bringing up something like, have you seen the Hayward? You know what? You know, like kind of, and maybe like, you know, spin it back at him a little bit, but I think we're on the mend nonetheless with the, uh, the pool guy.
2: Good, good. Bring him a treat. See what he me Bring him a bagel. Bring him a bagel. <laughs> Cupcake. This
1: is how we do it on Long Island. We bring our pool bring people bagels. Bring him a bagel.
2: Bring him a cup of coffee. A crumble cookie. I don't know. Everybody could be plied with food, I feel like. Especially the guy's, guys got a work. passion. That's a thing. I agree. I got to say, this guy's got a passion for pools. Yeah. Oh, appreciate. he's into it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. So you bring up the... You, you talk stock and trade then.
1: Right. Yeah. Like you so, were saying. Have you seen the anyway, new up there? Anyway, no, we'll be back there in the coming months and... Good luck. I'll, give, I'll make sure to give you an update. Thank you. Good luck with that. All right. Let's talk about Game of Thrones season five. This is our fifth episode. Naturally, 2015 mm-hmm. is when this aired on HBO. Uh, I just watched it. So now I'm in the in the territory where I've only seen it once. Starting with season five, I've definitely only seen all of this one time because I was trying to think oh. and I think I've I've I think I put this out there, but I don't know for sure. Is that. I stopped watching Game of Thrones. I watched Game of Thrones like up to season three or four. Then I stopped. Then I went back and started watching it to like season three. And then I just stopped again. Then when I think it ended in 2019 or it must have ended in 2019.
2: Yeah, because
1: because I when that was happening on HBO, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to time it so that I watch all of it leading up to the last episode. And I actually did it. And so, like, I didn't want the end to be spoiled for me. Right. And so I'm in the territory now where I've only seen these once. So this is my second time through season five of Game of That's Thrones. That's exciting. And there are I think this is a great season. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here. What I will say is that, in my opinion, Mike disagreed when I brought this up, mm. which I was surprised by. But, you know, we, we we diverge is I was like, I feel like you can tell that the show gets worse this season. Like this is when it starts to teeter. I don't know if it's like going down yet, but it's like plateaued. Sure. Because I think from one to two to three to four, it was like building, 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 building. And then five, I was like, okay, now we're like kind of like in a good space, but I don't think it's getting any better. And my major complaint, if I had one about this season, although there are many compliments that I want to give it, I have myriad notes and lots of things to talk about is. I think this season feels rushed. There's, I, I don't know, like, I know that it starts getting away from the book a lot. We have a question about that as well, and I know that the books start getting bigger too. I mean, I, I bought them. Yeah, the books do get longer, Dick. so I don't know that they would have been. And again, I keep bringing up Micah, but she she's the one. I don't want to steal her point. She's the one that brought this up. Is like they really could have nipped two, you know nipped this in the bud and killed two birds with one stone by splitting the season into twenty episodes and maturing a lot of the storylines that seem rushed because. All the stuff with Tommen's weird—they ignore Brand completely in this season, which I have no problem completely. with. But you know that's that's interesting. I doubt that that's in the book. That they just don't talk about Brand for an entire yeah, book. I doubt point. that. Yeah. So I think they had to make a stylistic choice there. I think the stuff with the faith, the 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 uh, what do they call the uh, the crazy militant faith oh, people? The faith
2: militant, sure. The
1: faith militant, right? Sure. That seems that's an awesome arc. That's rem- very reminiscent of Protestantism and the Reformation and all that in my mind, and they write they kind of go through it too quickly and so it's actually a compliment maybe to the show my biggest complaint is that it's like man let it breathe a little bit yeah sir marion is 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 in striking distance of aria and you spend five minutes she's been saying his name the entire se- series he's been on that list and then they just get it uh, get it over with right they that's the problem is it just feels like it's too many cool things are dispensed with and if i were If I were a betting man, I would think that they realized when it was too late that, man, we should have stretched this out. Because as I brought up Micah's point, she was the one that said then they could have gotten more from the books. And although it wouldn't have been ameliorated because we know now that George Martin just hasn't fucking written anything. (laughs) You know, basically, since the show began, I don't I think maybe one book came out right after the show began and that's it. So. I think they might have gotten more blood from this stone by acting like that. And I think that that's my biggest complaint, because there's a lot of really cool stuff to explore here, a lot of interesting characters. And I don't think they spend enough time exploring them before we get to what's next. So sure. Uh, let me throw it over to you. What do you think of season five as an overarching um, as an overarching thing of Game of Thrones?
2: I like you saying that describing the season that it's kind of plateauing or leveling off. I think that's kind of a, a really fair description. And there is a lot. They do try to cram a lot inside of 10 hours. And I think doubling down on that, you definitely reminded me of that. I think season five, this is kind of an exciting conversation because I think it's still Game of Thrones in its prime. Like we said, I think maybe you could argue that it's starting on the downslope of that prime now. And it's it's interesting, like you, I don't remember... There was a lot of surprises for me in this season, things that I had forgotten, and I think season six is the same for me. I don't exactly remember now where it's going to go, but I think there's plenty of excitement in the season. You could argue it's not quite maybe as great as seasons three and four, but you know, new alliances are forged, new enemies are set against each other, new knowledge comes to light, new characters are crossing up for the first time, a couple of few key character deaths in this season so plenty to talk about but definitely you make me realize that they did cram a lot into this season and even though that wasn't my initial takeaway or at least my my go-to prime takeaway that it felt rushed it definitely as I think about it and absorb that it definitely is something where they just kind of they kind of gloss over a lot of things. I think they do a, a, you know, they do a good job. I think the writing is still good. I think there's some great performances this season, but that is an interesting too, uh, point too. How they just skip over the whole Hodor Bran, th- uh, three-eyed Raven thing. That's not in this season anywhere. And I, but I do like the way this season. Oftentimes the seasons are bookended with such great moments, and I do like the book ending of this season. And then there's so much that happens in between in that 10 hours. You know, again, kind of daunting to talk about it, but we'll do our best.
1: Yeah, no, it is. It's totally daunting. I think I don't think I've, I have so many notes um, and I think the best way is we'll just kind of go through them in the order that I've written them here. And then I'm sure we'll just go into many different directions. Yeah, that sounds good. The beginning of season five, or at least near the beginning, starts with a flashback from Cersei when mm. she's a kid. Now, I like this a lot. Um, and the witch accurately predicts her future so it seems i thought i remembered that this was resolved that something happens with the witch am i crazy because it wasn't resolved in the season do we go back to this later
2: that's a the... great question i don't remember season six at all
1: no i don't remember i basically don't remember anything from this nothing point. and so i was thinking about that i'm like i could have sworn they go back and like something crazy happens with the witch but i think i'm making that up like they kill the witch or are. like the witch you know like something ha- like I don't know, but I guess not like they just because it's one of those things, you know, like where you introduce a flashback and then it pays off later. I'm like, what was the payoff that I totally miss it? Because I I think I've watched I think I'm sitting here watching and I'm, right. I'm writing notes. But I
2: wonder it does ring a bell for some reason.
1: But the, the the show doesn't often but does sometimes play with time. I'm wondering how you feel about seeing a young Cersei. And I don't know that it's relevant, really. But this idea that she's kind of implanted with this notion that things are going, these things are going to happen, these various things are going to happen it's not unlike in, in in my own life how i told you a ouija board told me that i would die when i was 23 when i was like you know 10 it's or whatever next. and i remembered that until i was 23 oh, and when i was course. 23 i thought about it all the time i was like is it gonna and when i became 24 i was like holy shit it's you know f- fake but what i do remember and as i've said i remember that it told me my friend tim would die when he was 56 and uh, you know oh god forbid that happens but like what if that happened and i was so like holy
2: creepy. fuck
1: You know, (laughs) so what do you think about this kind of this introduction to a younger Cersei, but also, again, an invocation of blood magic and all this other stuff, this supernaturalism, but very light, light touches of supernaturalism, believable touches. So what what do you make of it?
2: Yeah, I love the foreshadowing. And I like the conceit of wanting to know your fortune, although that's extremely dangerous. And you know, and you don't know what you're getting because our human nature, we want to hear something good. We want to hear something positive, but you're going to hear whatever you're going to hear. So, and I love stepping back into blood magic. I really wish that, I, th- I guess that character with Cersei was just a childhood friend, but it would be cool if that character was somebody that we saw, you know, again in the future, that would have been kind of neat. And it was just a treat to see adolescent, preteen, just young teen Cersei, and that, that attitude, it carried over. The casting was amazing. I mean, she really felt like Cersei from 30 years prior or something. It was really, really cool. And just that kind of just the way she obviously always sort of took that attitude of that unapologetic, a little bit fearless, holier than thou, pushing her weight around, and that the fact that some things never changed. And also knowing such a sharp, seemingly could-be-devastating prophecy, right, that it didn't change anything about her. You know, you would think like, all right, I'm gonna dial back the control freak thing or maybe be a little less evil, but she just kind of leaned down into the, on
1: it. She's leaning into the predestination of it almost. Totally. Which is which is interesting. And it yeah. speaks
2: it directly to what's going on with Danny, the younger queen, younger, prettier queen, and all that kind of stuff. And um we know it's we know it's gonna happen. It's it's foreshadowing in our story, which is kind of neat.
1: Yeah, I liked I like beginning like that. It felt a little lost like which I, I like flashbacks when they're when they're appropriate and and respect I just could I, in my mind when I was watching it, I'm like yeah they go back at some point I wonder about and this. the witch like they kill the witch or like they kill the girl or something I could have sworn, but I don't think that that happens I don't know why that memory is implanted in my mind
2: you gotta see
0: today's episode is brought to you by Angie Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com.
1: At the beginning too, we see the the result of Varys Varys helping Tyrion escape after he kills Tywin and they leave Westeros. What did you think about seeing those two again? I, I, I love their interactions. They're amongst my favorite combination of actors. This season, and we'll go into it, really brings to bear a lot of different and interesting character combinations where you're like wow this is a scene with this person and this person very interesting but never even would have expected that or I always wonder that those dynamics too like they might not ever if you're with in the Jon Snow storyline you might never ever ever see anyone that ever worked on the the you know the capital oh sure whatever yeah and I always find that interesting with a with a cast this big so it's cool to see them cross over and I'd love to know more stories about that, about how how that all went. But nonetheless, what did you make of seeing Tyrion again in his kind of state and Varys kind of convincing him? Now it's interrupted by uh, events with Jorah later on, but it kind of convinces him like you need to go and and seek out Daenerys. And what do you make of of
2: that? It's so cool. And, you know, that whole dynamic, I think in season five, they said they filmed in five separate countries, if I'm not mistaken, Ireland, Croatia, Iceland, Spain. So when those eventual character cross-ups that we're waiting for happen, they're such events. But that's a great point, too. It's also that way for the cast and crew. Might be their first time in that spot. You know, later on, we see certain characters in King's Landing. I know for a fact that those characters have never, had never been there before later on in Season 7 and so forth. But, you know, I love the dynamic between Varys and Tyrion. It's really kind of this mutual respect and admiration society that these two have. For each other, that's growing. And I love that I always think about Varys and Littlefinger and Peter Baelish kind of in the same breath. They're both kind of these, when we meet them as early as season one, they're both kind of these shadowy figures. They command these networks of spies. They're kind of spy masters and they operate in the shadows. And it seems like season five really defined each of them where Varys says very early on to Ned Stark before Ned's death, he says what he's what he's really all about is peace, and the that's realm. always planted. That seed's always planted right. in your head as you watch Varys maneuver. And is he on the up and up? And it turns out that he is. And Tyrion sort of lost his lease for life. Like he he kind of checked out after the death after finding out about Shay and murdering his father and being whisked out of King's Landing and rescued by Jamie and Varys, but. He kind of, he, he was kind of cashed out. He kind of cashed in his chips and there was an apathy and you felt so, so he's just overcome with sadness and guilt and the, all the tragic things that befell his family, some at his hands. So it's interesting that Varys is the one to partially rescue him, but that's also for Varys' sake, for Varys' plans, because he sees... Tyrion as part of that plan because he knows how adept politically Tyrion is, how he could talk, how he's going to be an important, how Varys thinks Tyrion's going to be an important figure in this kind of new world order. So it works in Varys' favor too, because Varys needs Tyrion, or at least he feels he does. And at the same time, this season with Littlefinger sort of shows us his true colors when he just completely throw Sansa into harm's way just at you know at his own behest to further his own ends so it's it's interesting that Varys and Littlefinger we both have a pretty good idea of what they're about now and it seems like Littlefinger is really the bad guy and Varys is going to have some sort of more uh, a more honorable role to play in things which is which I think is really kind of neat and i love that the, the way the two bicker but the way the two kind of believe in each other and season five had a lot of that there was a lot of shedding of light on things that you've been questioning for the first four seasons or so which is kind of a lot of payoffs which is kind of satisfying i think
1: definitely like you want at least to a degree everyone's always backstabbing each other like you were saying with little finger it's so 007 like where you can't even keep up with the backstabbing and the double dealing and like what the point is. It it almost becomes like so insane and chaotic for chaos's sake. And you're right with Varys, even in the very beginning when he would go and visit Ned Stark in the dungeon, he would talk about the realm and and peace and um the longevity of of these things that they hold dear, and that he doesn't really care about anything else. And I think we touched on it earlier in another episode, but I love that Varys is a eunuch because. They the and they talk about, you know, in season four, how this all happened. But I think like what I appreciate it most is that it kind of insinuates perhaps that by doing that to him, it unleashed this. It's almost like George in Seinfeld, that really awesome episode where he isn't interested in women anymore. So he becomes really smart. It almost almost like did him a favor. And I almost feel like Varys sees in Tyrion himself, but rattled to the vice of the world and not willing to use uh his his god-given talents for the betterment of the realm it's almost what we were talking about with spider-man 2 on another episode recently where i was saying like kind of it's kind of fucked up that the choice is put with peter parker where it's like no this is what you have to do you were given this power and it's like dude i was just bitten by a spider right and and i kind of feel the same thing with varus where it's like well you were put in this unfortunate situation and you could use it as a crutch for the rest of your life and feel bad for yourself but you've actually just freed yourself from one of the earthly vices sure that will allow you to utilize your skill and i don't think that's a secret like i don't think that that's like unintentional i think that that is supposed to be read into it and so i really enjoy their characters and their interactions as well it's frustrating because when jory gets involved later which we'll talk about later on it's it frustrate as as uh Tyrion says to him himself it's like he frustrates a plan that was just going to happen anyway it was just to- a total waste of time and effort right hilarious it, it, it helped jorah but it didn't do anything for the others all right so as we move on we are introduced to the sons of the harpy and this kind of growing resistance to denarius and i really found this interesting because for multiple reasons number one is you see the unsullied themselves kind of grappling with their existence going to like a whorehouse but like just sitting with i thought it was very deep like sitting with a prostitute and she's just like shushing him and rubbing his head they obviously right they're they're obviously eunuchs too so they can't do anything about that and they don't have those urges but they have the urge perhaps of nurturing of like wondering what it was like to have a normal upbringing and i I really loved seeing that side of them but denarius also hasn't come to terms with the fact that though she by brute force freed these slaves and reworked this society that is going back thousands of years, potentially with Marine and all these other places, that a lot of the people, even the downtrodden, didn't want this and don't know what to really do with themselves. And I find that a really interesting thing. You saw it to a much lesser extent than it's insinuated in this story in the after the Civil War there. A lot of people didn't really know quite what they're supposed to do, right? No one wanted to go back to the status quo per se, but it almost seemed like, well, you had a master and you had a place to be and you had a purpose and then you're kind of you, not your children, not people that didn't know any better, but you are brought to this new reality and you have no idea how to act. And um, I thought it was really cool. Like, though I have a hard time caring very much about what happens with Daenerys compared to a lot of other storylines, I cared more, I think, in this season than I did in the past because I think that everything started to become more dynamic over there not only interpersonally and we have deaths with Barristan and Grey Worm almost dies and Jorah comes and goes and all this yeah, other stuff but absolutely. but uh, the reality of the fact that she's kind of like a conqueror and they, and they come to terms with it I mean I think Tyrion says later on like why don't you just stay here and but it brings up the point that and it, it, it brings up the absurdity of all of this shit right like the claims and the bloodlines and all this and it's absurd like and that's the thing with daenerys is that that bothers me and i don't know if it's supposed to as the story goes on but it's just like what what are you even doing like i don't understand how you even came to this position because you are a you know, anyway I, i'm i'm going on and on so talk to me a little bit about how you feel about what's going on with her and marine and the slaves and the fighting pit and whatever else you want to bring up
2: yeah it is i mean a lot of the stuff that goes on with daenerys really is beholden to prophecy and just the people around her buoying her and sort of believing in her that's even why Varys and Tyrion are on this road now which is so interesting but i like the political reality of the situation she's sort of marching through slaver's bay liberating quote-unquote liberating these cities that really only knew previously one way of life and now she's dealing with the fallout of people like you said kyle not really knowing how to adjust to this new Life And I love the way that kind of comes to a point with the Sons of the Harpy it feels very realistic because now you have these seemingly noble Miranese families that are forming this resistance or opposition group to Daenerys's rule that want to restore slavery and their former way of life to Marine. Some would call it a terrorist group, but they're obviously there's strength in numbers there. And there's a lot of them. And they're secret. They're shrouded in secrecy, and you really worry for Daenerys and the Unsullied, and for Dario and and the rest, because they're fighting a proper foe. You know, it's almost like fighting ninjas, and they don't really have any answers. They don't know numbers. It's not conventional warfare. So now they're dealing with this giant backlash, and it's dangerous. And I think this is where they know that characters like Tyrion could come, and sort of be implemented and leveraged in a way to help because it's not, they don't just need warriors. They don't just need fighters. It's not just brute force. They're dealing with these other political ramifications as well. And that's not ending. And, you know, a lot of drama happens in the wake of that, the reopening of the fighting pits, uh, because they want to kind of restore, placate the people by restoring some sort of way of life that they're used to miss Sunday, trying to help out and being a little lost. We almost lose Grey Worm, as you said. So there's a lot of drama that befall, you know, Sir Barristan struck down by the Sons of the Harpy, Vali- you know, he fights them the best that he can, but he's killed. And of course, <laughs> you know, here comes uh, Sir Jorah trying to get right. back into Khaleesi's good graces a couple of times in, over the course of the season. But I, I like the arc. Probably, this was probably... Through all the seasons so far, my favorite Daenerys arc because of everything that's happening. And of course, everything comes to a head with Drogon returning. And, you know, in the meantime, Khaleesi, this mother of dragons, and I think Jorah warned her of this in season three or four, that these are still wild beasts. So even this pr- prophetic mother of dragons may not be the able to control The wild beasts. These. <laughs> <laughs> the wild beast, Khaleesi. Khaleesi. <laughs> And you know Viserion and Rhaegal are locked in a dungeon, and Drogon's off. It's sad. I don't like that. Galavant, I feel bad for you know? him. He's off wild. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I know. feel bad.
1: I I feel bad for the dragons in the crypt by themselves. But then I also feel bad for the fact that like one of them is just kind of hanging out, right? You know? Like and just and just rolling free. Life. Yeah, just doing whatever he wants to do. While the other two are just
2: trapped waiting for sad. Khaleesi to find her, uh, waiting for Daenerys to find her voice. Or I don't. I read about this to some degree and maybe it's because they go into it more in the novels but supposedly and maybe they do mention it in passing in the series but supposedly it's all to do with her level of confidence and leadership over them like if they feel that she's sort of on the fence or afraid in some way or there's no conviction there or fearlessness then the dragons won't respond to her interesting so that's and I guess that's what's going on with Drogon. Like he's waiting for her. Well, to yeah, I guess
1: they kind of do it. I'm sorry to interrupt. I guess they kind of do in their in, um, insinuate this because when there's like a, a, a villager comes and sees her and she's like, you know, my kid or whatever died because of the dragon. Mm. I think that's when she puts them away. So there is there is some sort right. of insinuation about that, but it's not looked at as like a systemic thing. It just looks like she, it looks like she's just being cruel to them, which is. The murdering I, don't know why it's hard. I don't know why it's hard to watch that, but it's just like, I don't like this. Yeah,
2: these, these and they kind of take it. Up. I mean, they could murder her oh when she yeah, puts them get... down there. You know, Yeah, they when they go down later on her. with the
1: prisoners, they could just do them all in, which is yeah. interesting. They could have killed, killed them all. They're but so maybe smart. They're smart. I'm so interested right. in the dragons. Yeah, me too. And we'll get me more too. of that later on. All right, uh, let's set more of the scene as we go on. We'll get back here with Stannis and the Red Woman, Melisandre, at the wall, Now, this is where I think a lot of the new acting combinations come in, which I think is interesting. You see Stannis with Jon Snow. You see Mance with Stannis. You see Davos with Jon Snow. You see Davos with Mance. A lot of interesting combos there. Plus, Dragon's Bane, whatever the hell his name is, and all these other people that are just kind of in in the work. So it's cool to see, finally, Stannis' story kind of intercept and Melisandre intercept with some other characters. And it's interesting St- and you see it at the end I mean and we'll get more into Stannis, but he just becomes so craven and it's interesting watching him kind of deteriorate in this season I like this character a lot and it kind of ruins it knowing that the actor didn't like playing him as you yeah, mentioned that, and that was like he was always confused because you see it and you're like really like you're so good at he's this. so good one but of the then best I lo-
2: yeah he's awesome he and, really I-
1: and then but we always make fun of him where like when we're watching and someone asks him a question he's like I have no idea <laughs> like you know <laughs> No idea what's going on. Like, there's some scenes where I just look at some of the stuff going on, and I'm like, my God! Like, he probably is, but maybe that's always been overstated. I don't know, but he's awesome. And I, I, but I love how the cravenness builds, and he's like, you know, fuck it, we'll use the wildlings as our army after our, you know, our army gets wiped out at at the uh, at the Blackwater Bay, and then they kind of reconstitute and they they surround the wildlings and have them dead to rights, and now. And I have to ask you about this too. This is where the term "bend the knee" comes from, mm-hmm. and I hate that term. I hate it, and the reason I hate it is because everyone said it for. I would love ever. to see the Google's. I'd love to see the Google likes you know trend for it, because no, I never heard anyone in my entire life say bend the knee, never in my life. No, night. So this came out in 2015. So I was thirty thirty one years old, and in, in that entire time, I had never heard anyone ever say bend the knee. And then it just it became this thing and was just running to the ground. It just became obnoxious, in my opinion. So I <laughs> always think when he when he kept saying it and I was like, oh, my God, just bend the knee. But why has no one said this for four seasons and you're acting like it's just a thing people say to each other? I don't understand. There's other opportunities for people to have said this in the past. is not funny. Anyway, what do you think about Stannis as we present him, his cravenness and kind of how he gets ingratiated with the Night's Watch and. And puts himself up basically at Castle Black, which is pretty fascinating too. As he, you know, at this point in the beginning d- is dwelling a an attack on Winterfell.
2: Yeah, it was cool to see Stannis and Davos arrive at the Wall. That was really neat and sort of hanging out up there and restoring his army and eating and resting and all that kind of stuff. And the tragedy of Stannis' arc really plays out over the course of this season. And it is tragic because he, on the one hand, seems like he has some sort of wisdom. But then I think what you said, that he's just so at the center of things, just craven and power hungry. And what really wants, really does, at the end of the day, want to claim the Iron Throne. I mean, that's kind of his end all be all. At the same time, he has the wisdom to, which a lot of people in the, in the in the realm don't, He has the wisdom to know that their best bet is to band together with the wildlings and even offers them a life and land if they'll help him, if they'll kind of form an alliance with him and help him take the north. And he even offers Jon Snow a lordship. You know, he says, I'll make you a Stark. It's what you always dreamed of. And I'll make you the warden of the north. And Jon Snow sort of doubles down on his dedication to the Night's Watch and turns it down. But I love... Jon Snow becomes a more interesting character the more would-be father figures he's surrounded by. And I love his relatively brief but very emotional exchanges with Mance Rayder over the course of the season and sort of that mutual respect that they have. And... The same thing with Stannis. They know that John is young, but that he's brave and courageous and a good leader and all of those things. And, you know, Tormund knows that too and kind of has to sell John to the wildlings at hard hand and just say, look, he's he's a prop. I know this is our mortal lifelong enemy, but this is a proper leader. And Tormund is another one of those guys who has the wisdom to kind of set aside their differences to band together in the face of this new threat. That a lot of people don't acknowledge yet. Even through season 5. Because it's not real enough for everybody yet. But it's happening. It's happening slowly. Those gears are turning. And you know everything with Stannis. You don't really know where it's going. Because you know you know he, he has the common sense. To want to band together with the Wildlings. He has the common sense to want to form this allegiance with Jon Snow. But then again he's kind of being... Pulled along by this red priestess, and you know it it all culminates in him murdering his own daughter, and it's really horrifying, and I think he i think I don't want to read too deep into this, but i I think he sends away Davos knowing he's gonna do that,
1: oh yeah, I think so too. I think that's exactly the reason
2: and you know he he doesn't he he doesn't strike while the iron's hot. he ends up sort of attacking. The um the Boltons and Winterfell with half his forces and no horses and they're freezing and starving. So it's very there's so many tragic things as that snowball just kind of gains momentum down the mountain, and then of course he's slain by by Brienne. And that's how it ends for him. It's so it's so good. I love that acting bit where he takes out the two Bolton soldiers, even though he's injured, and that but they, they cut his leg and he just acts like you know what I mean? He acts so frustrated that he's wounded as he sits up against the tree before, you know, before Brienne reveals herself. Right. So, so you're really great acting. It is interesting because you look at this guy. He's not Leo DiCaprio or Robert De Niro. It's like, what else has this guy been in that he would sort of, that we always hear the stories of how he really didn't enjoy the role that he just couldn't wait for it to be over, this guy. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> he's so good at it in
1: spite of Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny. I think that's funny too. Stephen Delane he plays Thomas Jefferson in John Adams mm. on HBO, and he's awesome in that role too. Good uh, actor, really, really awesome version of Thomas Jefferson. I gotta very watch like, that. very like cocky and aloof, and and all that's yeah. interesting. Oh yeah, dude, that we should do that series. Um, it's really, really yeah, good. we really should. Uh, it's fun. only six episodes, I think something like that. Oh, episodes? super easy. Yes, yeah, not not a hard one. It's just fucking awesome. You're gonna wish it was seven seasons when you're done with it. Okay, so we have th- that stuff established. Let's get. Some other things established here as well. First of all, I just love when we see Robin fighting with a sword. I, that's like a totally meaningless scene, but Robin fighting <laughs> with a sword, and Lord Royce says he swings a sword like a girl with palsy, which is like an amazing line. Uh, so I wanted to give a out shout out to, to that
2: Lord Royce. That guy is underrated. Yeah, Robin he's awesome. He's, he's,
1: he's yeah, he's great. He's just like just like whatever, man. Uh, okay, so let's move on and talk a little bit about. Well, actually, the next up that I want to bring up is is Cousin Lancel. Oh, yeah. and uh, I guess we'll just talk about who saw the high sparrow. And I mean, it's actually pretty interesting because you wonder. In the book, it's probably much more subtle because there's a lot more characterization. There's a lot more time. So it's like, oh, Cersei has an affair with her cousin or whatever. And it's like, that's probably something that's stretched out maybe. And then when he comes back, you realize like. I guess retroactively like oh okay that's why that entire arc was in this because otherwise what was the point of all that and you realize that Lancel actually is like the it, it was actually there at a lot of really fucked up things like he definitely got Baratheon too drunk he definitely was having sex with Cersei he was definitely doing all these things so watching him pop back in as part of this religious sect is really interesting and it brings us to the high sparrow as well now remember our show is on Patreon and you can support us on patreon.com slash last day media and get early ad free access and the ability to submit your inquiries to the show jay bands wrote in and said what's up dnc for season five i wanted to talk about the whole high sparrow cersei and tommen storyline the most interesting part of this story is how the young king tommen is being manipulated by his wife and his mother mm. and isn't able to realize what's going on until it's too late tommen being so naive makes you wonder how tough it would be for a young king in this cutthroat got world also also when cersei is overthrown and imprisoned by the H- high sparrow we realized tywin may have been right she isn't as smart as she thinks she is. A man has no name. Thank you, j Vance, for writing it. So this is the best part of the season to me. And had me really feeling like, man, this in and of itself would be an awesome story to tell and give us a little more grounding in the religion. We see some of the religious rites. We know that we hear some of the, the stuff they say about the seven gods when they get married. We hear that multiple times, all of those interesting things. And it's cool. It's cool that they have like this, this this rigorous ethos of of their main religion. And then there's other religions as well, the old gods that they still acknowledge up in the North, for instance, and the gods across the Narrow Sea. But I dig that there's this, in my opinion, re- like almost to the point of being overt, this Reformation Catholic versus Protestant thing here, which I can't help but escape that. I just feel like that's obvious. C- Catholicism was, was often rightfully abused for being, you know, flagrant with its money and and hypocritical and no one lived by the creed and indulgences and all this kind of stuff i mean that's what brought out all of the um well lollardly first and then the proper protestant religions later on and so i see that here and i dig it like i really dig it these guys carve stars into their own foreheads and walk around with clubs and wear these cloaks and they're led by this this guy the high sparrow jonathan price pl- oh, fucking awesome so good. just absolutely
2: so awesome good
1: and just one of the great characters i think in the entire show but you know that underneath the facade he is full of shit like he in my opinion and we you know i don't want to get season six yet where he's in that as well but you know that it's it's real but it's performative You know that it's more than him being just a Mother Teresa. It's not. There's more to it than that. And it's fun to watch Cersei finally create a monster that she cannot control by bringing back this ancient. Because we find out that the the organization that they're bringing back is hundreds of years dormant. And was put away because it was out of control at the time. And now they have control over even the monarchy themselves. And so this is good shit. I mean, I, I love this, and I, that's why I wish that this was longer, because it's like, this could have been 10 episodes, just this part of it. Nonetheless, everything else that we need to get through. So what do you feel about, how do you feel about the High Sparrow and, the, and this, this move towards uh, Puritanism that we see?
2: It's so good, man. Who would have expected this? I mean, you still have King's Landing, the Lannister army, one of the most powerful armies, probably not susceptible to being taken over with military might by most foes in the world, but slowly being taken out from the inside. And, you know, this all comes down from the power vacuum that's created in Tywin's death. Because they say this faith militant, this cult, these sort of, the sparrows, this organization has been lingering, maybe over, over Casterly Rock or in other places, but never dared under Tywin to enter King's Landing. They know Tywin would never have that. So in the wake of Tywin and possibly Joffrey and everything that kind of, all those dominoes that fell, in the wake of all those characters not being there anymore, and it's just Cersei now, they saw an opening. And, and they come in and you have these, these zealots, this unforgiving, hardline, hard right, religious organization that Cersei sees an opportunity to basically use against the Tyrells. She welcomes them with open arms and gives them power and props them up. And you know what happens? They come for her. And, you know, she ends up taking out the Tyrells, right? They, she ends up t- imprisoning Loris and Marjorie. And then she ends up suffering the same fate herself. It was so, it's so interesting. And Jonathan Price, man, as soon as he popped up and just enjoying his whole performance again, he plays humility. Or possibly false humility. We don't really know. That's what that's how yet. it
1: feels to me. Yeah. Like it feels like that, which is great.
2: Like yeah. that holier than now, but quiet, right. but doing it quietly. Um, I think the first time I ever saw him was in Glengarry, Glen Ross with Pacino yeah. and Baldwin and Jack Lemmon and Kevin Spacey. And he's he plays a small part in that Jonathan Price, but he's so good. And uh it's it, it's such an interesting character because now we're getting this whole different take. It's not like this military in fighting that we've mostly seen over the fast, you know, past four seasons or so. It's something else, and something else that's powerful, and something else that's a that's a big threat. And again, the way Cersei so, sort of allowed it. And the other thing that surprised me was, at the center of this whole thing is a power struggle over Talman. Now Talman is not cut out for this world. He doesn't have the The skill set or the tools to be king. He really needed Tywin pulling those puppet strings. When Tywin was dead, was killed, Tywin, uh, Tolman was sort of, that was the end for Tolman, I think, because he doesn't really have the conviction. He's, He's too nice. I mean, he's too gentle. And he's being pulled between two, he's serving two different lords and his mom and Marjorie. The thing that surprised me about this season was Marjorie brought a lot of Cersei's wrath on herself by being so flippant. Like insulting Cersei in front of her girls and saying, Oh, what do I call you now? The Queen Regent or Queen Queen Mother. You know what I mean? Like kind of these digs and these barbs and this I don't even know what Marjorie could have been thinking. She's I think Marjorie's out of her league with Cersei. And I think a lot of that was Cersei exacting revenge because I'm not sure how it would have went if Marjorie just relinquished or seemingly just relinquished a little of that control and sort of behaved a little more behind the scenes with Tommen instead of trying to force everything her way immediately. And then seeing really powerful characters like Lady Olena come in and really not have a leg to stand on against the faith militant. You know, she can't negotiate, she can't use her money for leverage, she can't use her power. And we see this is a proper foe for the Lannisters and Tyrells. And when the season, it's so funny because I don't remember how it continues into season six, but I'm really looking forward to it because I completely forgot how it, how it resolves.
1: Yeah. It's, it's fun to see and they go into it and they say it somewhat literally at times, but this idea that your money doesn't matter. Your positions of power don't matter. There is nothing you can do about this. It reminds me a little bit of an echo of what ha- of when Jamie gets his hand cut off. Mm. They kind of say the same thing to him. There's like, there's nothing you can do. You know? Like, there's nothing you can do for us. And it's fun to see them have to be contorted into these pretzels. Even characters you like, like, like you said, Olena and others, like they they actually are confronted at one point to Tyrell's when I, I don't know if she was if Olena's talking to Uh, Cersei before she's arrested or who it is but she's basically like you know we're just going to withhold our food it's it's insinuated over and over again that that they own like the farmlands sure yeah and then but then they say something oh no maybe it's the the high sparrow but like have you ever sowed the soil yourself because he's saying he basically said that's who it was because he was basically saying like the people are are cognizant of what's going on like there's a there's a, a class revolution happening here and it's it's not really important to the overall story, but I think it's one of the most interesting parts of, of game of Thrones, at least so far is just watching this develop and, and watching it all culminate, obviously with Cersei's embarrassment, which we'll talk about later. Oh my God. But, um, how do you think, how do you find, uh, Lancel and his performance in this? Like it, I like that they stuck with the same actor the entire time, which is something that they don't do with some other actors. And, um, I don't know if Marcella's been the same or not. I don't think so. No, they changed her
2: for season five, I think. Yeah. And
1: I think Tommen has been different at times too, maybe yes. early on, but yep. but they stick it with it here. Um what do you make of um
2: of that? I like the poetry of this seemingly insignificant or minor character coming back to play a big part in things and sort of cast King's Landing or the Lannisters this role of like this new foe that they don't know how to fight and i like the consistency of it too it's very thoughtful because lancel was injured at the battle of blackwater and he took the arrow just like above the heart and he still had the injury there and so I say asked him about that and i remember when that season wrapped with that season two or three thinking like did lancel just die i, I you know did, did he die of his wounds i wasn't really sure so to see him come back was interesting he's also the son of of tywin's brother who's the one who's fighting cersei on the small council during the season um he's like the military advisor yeah we don't really see a lot of him no yet. I'm, no we don't yeah. we don't it, he kind of comes and goes it takes on a very minor role and they insinuate that
1: he's kind of like an asshole too like and like a blowhard yes with some dialogue i so. think he was Which another
2: th- one yeah. that kind of stayed on because of tywin Right and Ty, in the in the wake of Tywin's death, this kind of new order and the shifting kind of occurred with the Lannisters. And the thing with Lancel is, you're wondering like, is he going to? He's part of this this religious order, but we know about his involvement with Cersei. And that was the whole thing with all oh, the Lannisters are canoodling with family again. And that was that was kind of fucked up that arc because that was when Jaime was captured. This is supposedly the love of Cersei's life, even though that gets dark. And she's boffing her cousin. And this whole thing with Tyrion sort of taking advantage of Lancel and kind of making him his puppet because he's another one of those idiots and the whole political intrigue with Shay and everything. And then for this character to come back and, and basically say, like, Cersei's, you know, at the... I already atoned for my sins. Now I have to... You know, he basically drags all her shit out on the carpet. When Cersei goes through all that, Kyle, do you, she's such a relentless bitch, right? Kind of a hard character to feel sympathy for. But did you find yourself feeling bad for her when she's kind of dragged into the whole thing, imprisoned in the cell, no food, no water, run naked with her hair cut off, run naked along the streets with people throwing rotten fruit at her? Did you feel bad for her in that moment?
1: Yeah, we should we should talk about that. I guess Uh, Ernie M wrote in said, hey, gang, Cersei's walk of shame is the season's defining moment, in my opinion. Mm. I remember feeling bad when I first watched it, but now I kind of enjoyed it. You guys (laughs) feel bad for Cersei. Should we feel bad? Thanks. No, I mean, like you you can't you feel bad in the moment? Yes. Like, is it. It's a way I would prison or I would uh, punish a prisoner or a a, a malcontent or something. No, (laughs) but no one if anyone deserved that it's her it's hard for me to feel bad like she is just hopelessly evil she really hopelessly is. evil it's insanity like it's totally sociopathic and insane and any way that she gets her come up in is good the problem is is that just this just hardens and makes her worse so and she and she's as her 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 i guess uh yeah her uncle says on the small council like you've surrounded yourself with sycophants and it's true like the p- only people at the end that are left are people that are just totally devoted to her and to the power and to the Lannisters because they've lost a lot yep and so no I don't particularly feel bad for her that scene is awesome Micah had let me know that it was a body double that played Cersei I didn't oh, know I that. didn't know that and uh they I guess maybe digitally put her face on there or whatever okay. but I love the, the the priestess character like the nun character is awesome <laughs> <laughs> so many great memes with her, like the shame memes and stuff Sister like that. Maria. that are Sister Maria, I don't Maria-ish. know. I, I just call her that. I don't know. Oh, okay. Is that what her? I don't so, know. She
2: reminds me is. of the sound of music. I don't know why. I don't know why it is. I
1: don't know why. It's, uh, it's septa Anella, Hannah
2: Lodingham. Oh my! Yeah, God. she's scary. She's scarier than the than the High Sparrow.
1: Yeah, she's she's frightening. She's awesome. Yeah, she's she's great. And I, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, uh, The Handmaid's Tale, just in that it shows that even though this is a masculine and misogynistic society, that there are women that play a role and play a powerful role behind the scenes, which is totally a huge part of Handmaid's Tale. And one of the really interesting parts of Handmaid's Tale is how women are part of the reason that this happens in the first place. And then they're disempowered by the very people that they empower. So, so I, I have a hard time feeling bad for Cersei, but you don't want to see it. You know, it's like watching the execution of someone who murdered someone. It's not necessarily pleasant.
2: Right, to, they to really see. torture. I mean, but you know what, though, Sir it shows you again, Cersei. Yeah, she's evil and conniving. She has middling intelligence, but she doesn't have the wisdom. You know, Glasshouse Cersei is going to throw stones. That revenge plan against the Tyrells completely backfired, and that's why it happened to her because yeah, again, she let them everywhere. in. Yeah, she gave them power. She put them up on the pedestal. She she gave them the the maneuverability to you know, sort of change everything. It was a big tonal shift for that whole place. And just knowing that they were around and probably posturing behind the scenes, just waiting to be able to come into King's Landing makes it even more insidious when you think about that. And just sort of acting and being opportunists, you know, and just waiting till they knew that they had that opening. It's so evil. And, you know, you're kind of waiting. You you see Jonathan Price. you see the High Sparrow, you see this order, you see all the monks or the, the High Militant muscle with their clubs and everything. And you're waiting for them over the course of season five to sort of reveal themselves as just as corrupt as Cersei, as the Lannisters, as the High Septon who gets caught in the brothel. And they don't. They really don't reveal themselves. They really... They seem squeaky clean and actually holier than now when the season ends. Again, I don't remember where it goes in season six, but you know something is amiss with this.
1: You know, right? That's what that's what I was saying with with the uh, the Jonathan Price character too, the High Sparrow. It's not that I think that like you would find him, you know, banging some little boy or something like that. Right. Like it, it, it uh, what I think is that like he. He his vice is power. Like he knows he's powerful. Like that's what he wants. It's not about the earthly things that he's letting go because that's kind of what he craves. That's why I think the performance is so multidimensional because he is playing, as you said, like the the very the very you know nunish, you know, very holy kind of character. Yeah, and he does it very well. But you know that there's just a, a layer underneath it that's not what it seems. Yeah, and I love that scene when they go and they take the high septin and the in the um especially because when they take him in the in the brothel he's like so, he's like playing into this whole thing of like selecting these priestess like uh, this whole hookers role play and all of this it's, it's yeah it's interesting it's really interesting stuff and it's got like i said it's just so brutally reformation politics it's it's good it's cool it's interesting to see i mean it's way worse than what was going on then of course but it shows that there's the there are these interpretations of their religion where you don't need to kind of interface with like with a priest to have that relationship you don't need to you need to do good acts you need right. it, it, it's totally it's totally obviously a, a version of that so i like that now we haven't brought up little finger too deeply yet we know that he's with sansa liza's dead as we met saw in season four but he's married in so he's got like control of the knights of the veil vale. yes and Brienne and Podrick encounter them at a pub. And this is interesting because it's hard to know. Like, Brienne starts to get frustrating for me at this point a little bit. Okay. Because it's like, what are you doing? Y- y- she gets on her knee and, like, you know, swears her allegiance to Sansa. And she's kind of like, whatever, doesn't want any part of it. They ride and they- Podrick almost gets killed and all the rest and shows some gallantry and and heartwarmingly, Brienne, you know, offers to kind of finally be nice to him. I don't know why (laughs) she has to be so mean to this dude all the time. It's fucked up. So she kind of, you know, offers to instruct him in sword play and and all the rest and horse riding and all that. And that's cool. But there's this manipulation, like you said earlier, of Sansa by Littlefinger and what she's trying to put her in a position to. It's it's hard to tell, I guess, at this point what he's really trying to do because he's whispering in one ear like, you know, you're a Stark and you're in Winterfell and the North remembers and all these kinds of things that she learns. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, you're going to be with the Boltons and and you'll legitimize the marriage by being the wardeness of the North. And they're not very well liked. And so this will kind of soften the blow. And one of the cool things we get is we we don't see her yet, but um, the the little girl Mormont character, who's oh, amazing, he- we, we get a letter from her. In, in this season, which is awesome. being so like, good. you know, I don't to Bolton or whatever. being like, I don't recognize anyone. That's not a Stark or whatever like that. And I was hoping she would show up. I didn't remember if she showed up in the season. because I'm like, that character just fucking rules. Oh, she's Bella so Ramsey, good. I think she's like that 10.
2: Character. Right. It's
1: dope. It's a dope idea. So good. Not only is it a dope idea that she's a little girl, but it's a dope idea that they like she's respected. Yeah, like, she's sitting there with all and we'll see it next season. But she's like sitting there with all those men and they're listening to her. And it's awesome. Dope. It's totally dope. I love it. Love it. So. Talk to me a little bit about how you feel about what's going on with Sansa and the Boltons and um, Winterfell kind of being under this occupation. She goes home. She meets the woman that tells her the North remembers in her bedroom. Mm. And then she's she's flayed for doing (sighs) so because Reek gives her up. Very weird stuff. Also, the interactions, again, for the first time since season one of Theon and Sansa. So it's another example of characters coming together. And, of course, her interactions with the Boltons, Littlefinger's interaction with the Boltons, a lot of that kind of finally crossing over so talk to me a little bit about how you feel about this
2: yeah i mean little on this campaign right to align himself with everybody he's smoothing things over with the lannisters then he's on his way to the Vale. he sort of aligns himself with one of the most important key militaries in the land and marrying the lady of the Vale. and then she dies so he doesn't have to have any attachments but now he's politically connected and military militarily connected to that army and which, you know, hence his interest in Robert the Robin the weakling. And then his next move is to sort of wed Sansa to Ramsay Bolton and secure, really, in not so many words, secure his own place in the north. And sort of draw up these allegiances so he's, he's sort of slowly taking out any idea of an enemy. And just completely, unapologetically throwing Sansa to, into the lion's den in marrying in marrying her off to this monster in Ramsey Bolton. And you're just wondering, again, we talked about this in season three, season four, since the beginning, really. Where is it going to end for Sansa? Where is the misery, the suffering, running afoul of the most hideous people in the land? Where is this? How is this going to finally end for her? It, it's almost to the point of comedy and... It's so, it gets to such a degree that you almost don't even feel bad for her anymore. It's terrible to say, but it's just like, wow, like, can she not help herself? And then Mm. being reunited with Theon and her taking exception to everything, but one key piece of information she does find out is that Bran and Recon are are alive, which she doesn't know. So again, just those little character cross-ups where we get new information or a character learns something that they previously didn't know. There's a lot of that in this season. And I agree. And you know, we get Reek finally returning to some sense of Theon by the end of the season in whisking Sansa away to safety, jumping in the snowbank off the wall after they kill Ramsey's girl. And yep. Yeah, brutal
1: death. I didn't remember that death scene. Oh, "Oh." that was brutal.
2: It was so even hard to watch. Like a watermelon. Yeah.
1: But yeah, you know that. But that's another example, Dave, of the show just moving too quickly. Like Theon goes from Reek to this shadow of Theon too quickly. Yes. Because remember, like the next time he tells Bolton. Well, he tells. Yeah, he tells uh, Ramsey Bolton Mm. that Sansa is talking to this woman into this this bubbling resistance and they flare like I said but it's the next it's not until the next time that Sansa sees Theon that she's like you told on me why did you do that and it's at that moment that Theon becomes himself again I, I just it's too quick I yeah. doubt it happened like that in the books yeah I, I just I doubt it it's it's like just, a light it bulb just moment. seems yeah because Theon's character is annoying but that character's played very convincingly and it's total torture like it's it's incredible the boltons are nuts I, I just what i love about the boltons is that lord bolton sees in ramsey just this flowering chaos that he just tries to harness and take advantage of yep. he almost you could tell he like knows he's crazy and looks at him but he's even hesitant to kind of correct him in the moment like right he he tells him later on like you embarrass yourself at dinner but he doesn't tell him in the moment he doesn't try to embarrass him and, I don't know. And even the way Ramsey talks to him is like, how did you find like when he's like, how did you find it when he's talking about having sex with his fat wife? And how do they know that she's pregnant? And I love that, by the way. I love that Bolton married her because the dowry was her weight in silver, which is
2: that is amazing. That is so so amazing. Because I think
1: I think it goes that Walder Frey says, like, you can have any one of my daughters and I'll pay you their weight in silver. So he picks like the obese one.
2: That is I don't know if I realize that that's so that's like
1: yeah so that's the reason wow and it's so i like watching those characters they're dark man it's like almost their whole flayed man thing their their Mm, sigil winterfell itself being being this this treeless plantless lifeless place like it just has this whole horror vibe with them like they're well placed there
2: definitely definitely and and we know the northerners to be good guys in the first few seasons so it's nice to flip the script and show the different dimensions of the different houses and Ruse Bolton is interesting cuz he's low yeah. but he has some political skills it's not just military it's not just advising whatever he did with rob and all that kind of thing he ha- but ramsey has none of that ramsey is a wild card and he is chaos i like you saying that and Bruce knows just how to leverage that, you know, When where, you know, he says to his dad, like, I'm just going to give me 20 good men. They completely sabotage Stannis' whole camp overnight. He and tw- like he has the skill set, the, the cr- it's fueled by the cr- insanity, but he has the skill set to back up his shit. That's what makes Ramsey so scary. Why didn't they show that more? By the way, I know again, like, again, that was very rushed yeah that was in fact confusing it went so quick
1: yeah it was like wait why
2: is everything on fire what happened
1: like this is so important like stannis is basically like he loses that like at that moment takes him out of the fight like it's even worse than blackwater because like he really has nothing left at this point no and and they just yeah they just go by it like that oh my very strange
2: that's true yeah very quick it's a lot again a lot cramming in a lot trying to cram in a lot in 10 hours oh
1: oh all right well we haven't gotten to dorn yet Mm. and uh Andres wrote in and said this season is where the divergences from the books really start to negatively affect the quality now mm. again i want to remind everyone for people that don't know we've not read the books so we have no idea what's going on nope. here he says the entire story in Dorne is nonsensical a one-handed jamie sent on a mission to save marcella based on one piece of intel no horses no ships and no backup besides bron who even says it's a stupid plan absurd so i guess maybe this isn't even in the books at all i have no idea This was a little strange to me just because I don't really give a shit about the the widow character very much. Like, we don't really know her. She's I don't know why Dorne is really relevant. We hear a lot about Dorne and their alliance and getting someone back on the council, which they do. I do like that. Doran is like this interesting. He's like disabled in some way. Yeah. King and his brother was Oberyn and his wife obviously is mad about this entire situation. But he wants peace. It is cool to see, like, a dove king, kind of. We don't really see that anywhere else. But he's like, I don't want bloodshed. I don't want war. And Dorne kind of gives off that vibe of that bohemian libertarian vibe. They actually say at one point. Definitely. Even I think someone says to Jamie, like, we don't even we wouldn't judge you here for, like, what you were doing with your sister. Yeah. So it's like a totally looser, different kind of place with different mores. But this, it does seem weird because Marcella. I like that we get to see her again and she dies, which is unfortunate, but which I forgot about. I totally forgot that. I was like, what happens with her? Because oh, I didn't remember her being integrated back in back into King's Landing. So I'm like, what happens? Yeah, and then yeah, I was like, yeah. oh yeah, she never even gets back at all. So that's why yeah, I don't remember yeah. that. But it does seem like kind of a waste when you consider how Jamie's a great character. Bron's a great character. Their relationship's great. And it's fun to see him with that girl at, at his castle and he's just like kind of. <laughs> trying to enjoy the time and all that he's a great actor great performances but again with all of this crammed into 10 hours or less it just seems like such a waste to even do that at all when we have so many other demands that the plot is making at this point and it does seem unusual like and that is a rush thing too they get attacked by guards they fight then they next time we see them they're in their outfits then the next time we see them they're in the water gardens so like and they they talk about this place as being like the the inner sanctum of the capital like where they 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 refer to in earlier seasons when they're in in uh, king's landing of their gardens and comparing the two gardens and sure yeah all of those things and so it just is like how did this even happen and then they're in prison and then there's these there are these three daughters that he had and I do dig that they all use these different weapons. It's very cool, very video game-ish. But I just feel like it's a huge distraction all surrounding this wife character that I don't really care about. The last time we should have ever seen her is when she's screaming in agony in season four. That's dope. That would have been the the last time you would have reasonably wanted to see her. Sure. This whole revenge thing on them. like The revenge thing doesn't resonate because it might be better in the books, but we don't really understand the beef between these two families. Like We don't. We know... That there's like, there was these killings and these murders and all of this. Like we, we learn with the mountain and Oberyn and, and and kind of the exposition around that fight. But I don't know. What do you think about this, uh, this side arc?
2: Yeah, it's strange. This is the one that really from the outset of the season kind of rubbed me, not rubbed me the wrong way, but really struck me as odd. You have this washed up one handed knight and along with one other warrior, a proper warrior. I mean, Bronn's a wonder. He's a great fighter. But these two guys are going to invade a country like it's a country like Dorne's a country with an army. You know, they have yes, they have a, a, a peaceable king who wisely doesn't want war with the Lannisters. But the one thing that propels this caper right for Dorne and Jamie for for Bronn and Jamie is it's kind of done at Cersei's behest. And it does show the sway and the influence that Cersei has over Jaime. Because it does demonstrate that there is nothing this guy won't do that she says to do. And that is the whole reason he undertakes this mission. It's a suicide mission by all, by all looks, right? And they're going to go and rescue the daughter from this country, just the two of them. Again, one, has, one basically can't fight so Braun would be doing it all right. by himself
1: in fact the the, the the black guard the the like the i guess yeah, the main the guard of the king king yeah. Yeah, i like that line when he's like there would have been a good fight when you had two hands that's whatever, good shit whatever, which was yeah it was good it was and cool.
2: I, again jamie's reputation of of the way it was the way we were but i like <laughs> you know i like the fact that they're getting these threats from Dorn, and they don't know it's not the royal family setting the threats it's this little subset of this Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, actually, that's a, <laughs> yeah. th- that's a different movie. But these Sand Snakes and Ilaria Sand, Oberyn's paramour, they're the ones at the center of this threat. They're the ones who want to avenge Oberyn's death. It's not Doran, and it's not his. It's not. It's not coming from him. It's coming from this small rebellious subset of these people in Dorne, and. I think that is interesting and the The Alaria sand character is interesting and I understand why her and her daughters want revenge for the, the man that they loved in, in Oberyn, but I'm with you. I think, I think it would have been a proper ending to see the mountain crush Oberyn's face and then see her screaming in anguish and then sort of end it with that. You know, I, I, I know that Cersei lost everybody, lost Joffrey, lost Tywin, now it's down to Tolman and Marcella, and there's this desperation. Like, I got to get my kid back. They're they're threatening them. And, and she was worried with good reason. I mean, Alaria wanted to send Marcella back to King's Landing finger by finger. I mean, you know, Cersei had the right instinct there. But to send two people in, and then for it to actually work out, it's almost very comedic. I mean, I like that lethal weapon esque fun action duo thing with Jamie and Bronn and Bronn's becoming this gentleman and this nobleman and he's got Stokeworth and he's marrying into a fortune or he's trying to marry into this fortune and there's a lot of funny stuff behind these two characters Jamie's trying to adjust to his new role without you know without having the fighting skill to back it up and so there's a lot of fun things but to send them on this mission it's it's almost zany and comedic. It almost feels like, I don't know. It almost feels like a blazing saddles type thing. It just totally, it doesn't really work. There were probably other ways to get Marcella back into the fold, or if that was going to culminate in a tragedy with her being poisoned in Jamie's arms after, you know, I like that moment of Jamie and her coming to this understanding of her saying now as a young lady, I know you're my dad and I think it's awesome. And, then in the next breath, she's dying in his arms. It's very tragic and very unexpected. I remember the first time being like, "Oh shit!" Like they got her. Like they killed her anyway. And um, you really do wonder now: is that going to spark anything between Dorne and the Lannisters? And I don't think it does. Be- but yeah, because the I think what kind of happens weak. is They're the White weak. Walkers. Right? They right that whole thing comes to a head, so nothing else is important anymore. But yeah, it's a it's a right. funny arc. It really is.
1: The Lannisters are weak too. Like I don't know at this point, they're they're greatly weakened. They they say, as we said earlier, with Tywin dying, multiple people know, like, no, we don't give a fuck about them anymore. I, actually I think it's Bolton himself that says that with when they're like, We made a deal when Littlefinger's trying to bribe them and he's basically like, You made a deal with the Lannisters and he's like, I don't give a fuck about
2: the Lannisters. Right.
1: The Lannisters, you know, anymore. And that's interesting. It and it was relevant. all through right, that all all through that character of Tywin, which I think is uh is fascinating. We haven't yet talked about Arya, who has a really big role in this season, so we should. Logan dot ETH wrote in and said, Brothers of the knocked watch, what the actual fuck is up with the many faced god and the faceless men? We see the house of black and white in this season, and as much as I love all of Game of Thrones, this is absolutely the aspect I wish was fleshed out more. While I love how little we know and how mysterious it is, how do we not get more many faced god in this story? The Lord of Light has a lot of mention throughout the story, even outside of Westeros, and it's definitely interesting how the multiple religious really get screen time in season five. But what the fuck is going on in Braavos? The reason I think this is is because their religion really has nothing to do with what's going on over there, while the Melisandre and others are like at the center of sure this entire saga. So I think that that in itself kind of answers the question. However, it is cool to see this house like see her kind of cash in this coin that she gets earlier on from the Jockin character. And how she goes through this these rigors and this randomness of washing these bodies and sweeping floors and doing all these things, watching people kind of get assassinated in front of them by drinking this water. And then you realize that they're kind of taking the bodies into the sanctum where they can utilize the skill. And I love how Arya is unable to let go of herself. That scene where she buries the sword that John gave her. yeah. Is cool, like because the, the requirement of being in this sector in this cult or whatever is that, like, you kind of have to be no one anymore. And she learns that over time, but she can't look over past. And so Jockin tells her over and over again, like, you know, the girl is not ready and, and all these different things. And she ends up, as I said earlier in the episode, kills Marin Trant, who's one of her her targets. And that scene is
2: oh my god, is
1: awesome how you find out he's kind of like a pedophile and all these different things. Really interesting. And he keeps saying like younger, younger, they make you really
2: hate him before he's taken out.
1: Yeah. Like, and the, he plays a good role. The brothel keepers even kind of put off and disgusted by him. And you imagine the things that they see, maybe it's not as sophisticated as the brothels, obviously. And that little finger ran in where maybe his pleasures were, were catered to more easily. But, um, and he says something like bring me a fresh girl tomorrow or something. It's like, Holy mother of God, crazy. So, yeah, talk to me a little bit about Arya's arc and how you feel about her in season five.
2: I mean, I get so frustrated for her in the season because she spends a good deal of the season doing her best karate kid, wax on, wax off, Definitely. paint the fence routine as she waits for the jackin and the Faceless Men to actually start her elite assassin training. And But I like the whole philosophy at the center of this religion and... Sort of dedicating yourself to this many faced God is that you have to shed all your possessions and everything that makes you an individual. And that is the discipline. And that's harsh. So to be able to achieve that mindset, and really, I guess for Arya's point of view specifically, she's doing it really, the goal is revenge. She wants to be able to develop these skills to go and murder everybody that's wronged her, right? But I don't know what other reason you would dedicate yourself to the House of Black and White or the Faceless Men. What other thing could there be at the center of that? Why would you want to abandon your whole self? You know what I mean? So is that everybody's goal in the House of Black and White? There's so much proper Bravo's mystery at the center of this whole house of black and white thing. And that's what makes me fascinated with Bravo's in particular the dancing masters and the, the water sword technique and all there's so many interest, the coin and the, the speak there's so many interesting things, about Bravo's, but, and that's the thing. She kind of runs a foul. She kind of rushes things. She, sir, Marin is there with mace Tyrell and they're on this mission uh, for the iron bank. And, Arya gets wind of that and sort of sets the wheels in motion too early and ends up taking, you know, murdering him brutally. And then they, in return for that undisciplined move, they turn around and take her eyesight. So we find out this is very, it's very scary what Arya's involved herself in. She has righteous motivations, but we're worried for her by the time this season ends Definitely. because this. She's dedicating herself to this religion, and it might not go right.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's it's cool to have consequences there, and and she had a buy in. Like she went to them. She went through all of these troubles. Like they gave her a million ways out, so you almost can't feel bad for her. When no, she, she broke their this. protocol or went ahead of the game. Basically, sure. she she wasn't able to um to justify that, and so like you can't feel too bad for her because she did buy in. It's so interesting how the psychological component of aria and like what she's been through and what she's trying to escape and she wants to be someone else but she can't be someone else watching her play that that oyster saleswoman or whatever it was interesting like just just kind of playing like a woman like a girl a young girl again as opposed to being kind of in hiding or on yeah. the run interesting dig one character i want to talk about before i forget is kyburn mm. i like this character a lot i mean he's obviously evil and nefarious we we discussed him on a previous episode and just the the nazi doctor type uh vibe he gives off but this just this experimenter <laughs> and he lost his chains from the as a a meister and he's kind of just walk, working outside of the realm of official science but is still doing his experiments and it's interesting we see him first when they call when the uncle calls them all sycophants or whatever he's revealed as the new master of whisperers to replace Varys, i guess and um i like that at the end of the season like there's a few cool scenes there's only a few scenes really with kyburn And uh, I like the scene where he's like ordered to give to write a letter on a raven and send it out and he's working on the mountain. You don't really know that yet, I guess, but or you're not supposed to know that yet. But then the mountain like kind of like moves on the table and he's like, you know, relax, friend or whatever, all that kind of stuff. And then the very end of the season post Cersei Walk of Shame, which we already discussed, we meet the mountain uh, Kyburn's kind of creation of reviving this guy. And he took a vow of silence until all of your enemies are vanquished or whatever he says. Good shit. Pretty interesting. I like this character a lot. I think this character is super interesting and it's intriguing to know or to not know, like not remember really like what happens with him. Cause he's, he's such a silent gray character that has a lot of intrigue in a cast. That's full of intrigue. I think.
2: Yeah. He's fun. He's really fun. I mean, this is Cersei's biggest ally now. You know, this is a character who really dedicated himself and aligned himself with Cersei. Her biggest ally, this disgraced Meister, definitely not sanctioned by the Citadel. It's sort of this Dr. Frankenstein type. Mm. Not just because of what he's doing with Gregor with the mountain, but because of just everything he seems to be involved with. And the exception that Grand Meister Pycelle takes to him being around and... Even, you know, he she he's the liaison that comes to see Cersei in the cell before she's let free for her atonement walk. And he's really the one at her side now and creates this, basically, this super knight zombie thing to protect Cersei. Cersei has, like, a proper robot knight monster now. And uh, so she's got a Frankenstein's monster and a Dr. Frankenstein. It's a really interesting... Dynamic, and I remember back to meeting this character in Hall I guess it was, where they where they kind of uh, recruited him, Jamie and Brienne, and maybe was Kat Stark at the center of things back then? I'm not even sure. But it's interesting what they did with the character and how he just draws up with Cersei. And I don't know, without him, she might be lost at this point, a very key ally for Cersei now.
1: Yeah, for sure. I d- I'm intrigued not remembering where exactly he goes to keep going mm. we brought up jorah earlier and we should talk about his kind of re-entry into the story as well seizes Tyrion. it's kind of predictable Tyrion's with Varys, and he's drunk and he wants to get out of the ca- carriage and all the rest and they finally go to a brothel and and you just know something's going to happen uh while he's there and jorah shows back up What's interesting after this kidnapping, first of all, it's funny as hell. There's a couple of scenes where Jorah basically just throws Tyrion, like just throws him like in the boat, like just as he if he's really an does object <laughs> and not a person <laughs> and their dialogue, although there's not much back and forth. I mean, the dialogue from Tyrion is really interesting. You learn a little bit more about Jorah just through the exposition. But ultimately, he finds his way back to marine and surrounding environs. Well, first, they're found by slavers there. Th- and again, this happens so quickly, like it does. It's just so quick. I don't understand like they're slaves one minute and they're sold to this random guy. And then the guy just lets them fight. And so they lets them. Fr- it's like total. Why is it going so quickly? So that's frustrating. But they are nonetheless together. And I guess grow some sort of camaraderie with each other. Although the big thing is, is that when they're attacked outside of this mysterious and I don't know much about it. I wrote it down here. Mm. I guess they're outside of Valeria. And it's like kind of run down Roman like city. And they talk about something called the doom. I don't know if you caught that, but that's where they get attacked by the stone men. And I don't know oh, if the sure. doom has to do with the stone men or whatever, but, but he is nonetheless infected. He being Jora, is infected by the stone men, which we know throughout the rest of the season and it's getting worse and progressing. Speaking of the stone men, we also learn about Stannis's daughter and how they kind of put an end to that. It was, we, we mentioned a couple episodes, kind of more curiosity about what was going on with this. They call it grayscale. Right. So we we know now, and I, I just didn't remember if they got into that. So anyway, talk to me a little bit about Jorah and, and that whole arc if it interests you.
2: Yeah, he has an interesting he has an interesting adventure over the course of the season. He's banished by, of course, by Daenerys, and then sort of tries to get back you <laughs> put some cobbles and plants together to get back into her good graces, notices Tyrion and Volantis. When Tyrion got out of that cart, man, you shouldn't have got out of that wagon. And takes him and she, he. the plan is to offer Tyrion up to Daenerys to get back in her good graces. And then, you know, of course, like that doesn't work and then becomes part of this slaver fighting pit thing and has to basically save Daenerys the second time he's ushered into Marine during the course of the season, has to save Daenerys by one of the Sons of the Harpy, throws a spear through him. And that's how he finally gets back into good graces. But I love, you know, a lot happens to him. He goes through these adventures, um, contracts grayscale. I like the thawing that slowly happens in the season between Tyrion and Jorah, though. I think that's kind of cool. They they grow to have because they're very different characters and they basically start out as enemies and rightly so, but there's an understanding and a thawing that develops between the two characters that I like sort of ends a little contentious with the two towards the end of the season. But I like that kind of journey of them going on an adventure together and just being forced into having some sort of understanding of each other, which is kind of one of the, one of the shows that one of the things the show does really well. And um, it'll be interesting to see now with Jorah and Dario setting out to find Daenerys and Drogon, how it goes, because I really don't remember. I don't remember how season six even starts.
1: Yeah, me neither. It's exciting. Right. It's interesting. Yeah, we'll get back into it soon. So I'll, yeah. I'll watch it in earnest. But yeah, it's uh I feel like again, this is move this moves too quickly. Although it's cool that they dedicate more time to Daenerys this season. As we said earlier, I think it's it's more welcome this season than it's been in the past. What's fascinating for me watching her is that the jockeying and the palace intrigue surrounding her is I think most transparent compared to everyone else. So we get to see it the most. As everyone kind of, you know, with Barristan dying and Grey Worm injured and all this, these different people just kind of coming and going by her side. But it's so, it, again, it happens so quickly because though we know that Tyrion wants to become an advisor or kind of help Daenerys and and maybe exact some revenge on his family as well back in Westeros, it's like she just kind of adopts him as an advisor pretty quickly. I, again, I just, it needed more time. Everything needs more time to breathe. It's good, but it needs it needs more time to breathe.
2: Yeah, Tyrion really, I mean, if you really think about what happens in the season with Tyrion coming into the fold with Daenerys and her camp, they really do put a lot of trust in Tyrion. I mean, Tyrion could be coming as a complete spy from King's Landing, you know, or the Lannisters. So they really do put a lot of trust. Daenerys especially puts a lot of trust in the Tyrion and sort of welcomes him into the fold pretty rapidly. And it's one of those things where there was, like, no vetting process, really. They were just like, all right, I guess you're our friend now, you know, type of thing. And, you know...
1: Well, presumably, they would at least know that they must... They they say that they're looking for... You know, Tyrion is wanted. So they must know that he killed Tywin. So at the very least, they know that, like, well, he did that. I mean, he could be working for someone else, but maybe there is that. That's true. Uh, That's a
2: good point. And, you know, he's very charismatic, too. And I think... There's a lot of humanity with Tyrion even though he could be funny and he could be you know he could be clever and all of those things. There is something trustworthy and sincere about him and authentic. So I think that you know he has that going for him too. And I think I, I think he also has a little bit of a death wish. I think he's kind of half hoping she banishes him or assassinates him in the beginning because he has that still that long standing feeling of just that depression and the sadness and just overwhelmed by everything that's happened. You know, he's not himself. He, he, he's, he finds out he's not, he still wants to drink, but even in the brothel, he kind of discovers like, I'm not, I'm not feeling this thing with the whores and stuff like that. He's changing. There's a change coming over Tyrion and it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see where it goes for him now.
1: Yeah. I think part of the, the compelling aura around him is, this idea that he just plays the odds over and over again and he wins. Yes. You kind of get that vibe when he's dealing with the slavers in which he's like, you know, I was a fighter and I did all these things and blah, blah, blah. he just got, but again, it doesn't feel like it's very well developed. It just feels like it's too rushed because you would have, you would have imagined he could have gotten to that point, but maybe
2: like play it out a little bit.
1: He does survive by
2: the skin of his teeth. He's almost killed by the slavers at first. Then he's sold, you know, um, Jorah is sold and he's almost left without Jorah. He, and and I like, but a lot happens in a short time, but I like Tyrion's desperation through it all. He seems very, very like, a lot, he knows a, a lot at stake and it's hair trigger. Like, every, at his fortunes could turn on a dime and he knows it and he acts like that this season, which I think is really cool. There's a, there's a big sense of urgency that makes you nervous to watch it. You know, it's like, how is he going to stay with Jorah? How is he going to end up in, with Daenerys? It almost goes wrong so many times. But it is, again, that pace and that rhythm, it does feel a little rushed.
1: Yeah, and uh, I will say that I do like seeing him in combat. Like, there are a lot of characters it's fun to see in combat. I I really like seeing Stannis fight and others where you... Not that that Tyrion's talking a big game, but it's fun to see him in combat when necessary. I think, uh, as far as I know, he's killed three people so far. and, And in the arena, he kills a person with a dagger... And he's like willing to defend himself, so I like that he's not like a shrinking violet, even though his stature would suggest that he should be. He's, I mean, think of all the things he's been through.
2: He's courageous, just
1: physically, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He's very courageous, and I think it's uh, it's really neat. We haven't really gone to Jon Snow yet, as far as his status with the Knights Watch, and of course the way the show ends or the season ends with him being stabbed to death, or so one assumes. But he's voted by the skin of his teeth as the 998th lord commander as they say and we find out that master aemon has been there for 10 of them which is so fascinating and i love the scene with him and he's dying and he's talking about his past as a targaryen and Mm. kind of forget about all that as well good shit but i i i kind of was bummed i forgot about the whole stabbing scene and i was bummed because i was like you know it feels like people are kind of coming around to him. At, at one point, the old Lord Commander says to him something along the lines of, like, you know, you're, you have a good heart and it's going to get us all killed yeah. or whatever. But seem to acknowledge like something decent in him. But nonetheless, they, when he tries to, I guess, do right by the wildlings, which is I, I am. I, I understand everyone's skepticism, especially, you know, with Ollie kind of laying the last blow and all of that, seeing what happened to his family. Sure. You kind of understand that. Absolutely. But John kind of lays out to them for the first time. And they see it themselves at Hard Home at the Battle of Hardhome, which is these people will either become undead soldiers or they can come on our side and maybe have a chance. We can have a better chance. In other words, it's not like a zero sum game. In fact, like every person you don't bring over the wall is going to turn into one of those creatures. Absolutely. And yep. they don't really strike that at home until this season as making it a thing. It's like this is not some sort of binary choice. Like we must remove their bodies basically and get them on the other side of the wall and we see that a wall can be effective at hard home when the the avalanche looking thing comes in and and dude i love that scene when they're 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 at the door and the the gate and everyone's like banging on the gate trying to get in and then they all just retreat away from the gate and the shadows go away and it's like it's just so creepy but anyway what do you have to say about what's going on at the wall and beyond
2: yeah, I mean, Jon Snow, like you said, he gets the Lord Commander role at the skin of his teeth with uh, Grand Meister Eamon's vote, pushes it over the top, and just beats out Alistair Thorne. The whole thing with Jon and Alistair Thorne, I find myself really longing for Alistair Thorne's respect. You know, he I think he acknowledges Jon's leadership. I think he acknowledges the kids' fighting prowess and everything like that, but there's just, there's such a there's such a vile sort of hatred for John at the, at the heart of things. And you're just hoping for that to thaw. Like you're hoping for that ice to melt. And it's the one thing I was pining for this whole season is like, is Alice there and John, can they come to some sort of agreement? Can they, they and they almost seem to allies? because
1: he almost seems to, because he makes him first ranger and all of that. And
2: yeah, I know, mean, John is to- always gracious yeah. Right. But you never see it washed the other way with Alistair. And then, of course, it culminates the way it culminates at the end of the season. But I like uh, when they come with this battle, the Wildlings, that little faction of the Night's Watch and John. they come to Hard Home to fight the dead, and it really makes you realize what they're up against now. It's a proper battle. And the Night King is there, and he does what he does. But John squares off against one of the Night King's lieutenants. And that battle in itself almost gets John killed. I mean, thank God he had the Valerian Steel Sword. Or he would have been finished. Or, you know, have some Dragon Glass or whatever. But it only makes you realize, oh my God, the Night King is no joke. And then, of course, you see as they're floating away in that lifeboat, John and the last remnants of their survivors, he raises his hand and resurrects that all the dead. So now they know all their suspicions are confirmed. They're fighting this foe that's unbeatable essentially. And it's horrifying. And, you know, they have a giant and they have all these weapons and they're fighting for their lives and scraping with everything they have, but they barely make it out of there. And a lot of them don't make it out of there. So now you really know what they're up against. And of course you're dealing with the tension of those wild things being promised refuge behind the wall. And is Alice there and his cronies going to let them in? And you don't know there for a second. And then, of course, he does. And then, tragedy. I I don't remember this ending, what happens with John. I, I did not remember this at all. I think I remember what happens to get back to the living. Because somebody shows up right in time. Around the same time John comes back with the wildlings. But, man, that whole traitor thing. That whole moment, dude. Is so brutal. He's he's murdered by like ten of his brothers, including his, including Ali, who is like his steward. So, yeah, dude, it's and that answers the question about Alice. There, what side is he going to come down on? He's the first one to plunge the dagger in. Wow, what a moment! I really forgot about this. It was a shock to see it again.
1: Yeah, it's hard because on one hand, you can, as I said, you can understand where they're coming from. Like, oh. Like I said, he's the 998th Lord Commander. It's like, sure, who the fuck are you, dude? Like, we don't we don't deal with the Wildlings. We don't do things this way. Like, you can understand... They, we have all of this insight that they don't have, and also we ha- are lacking all the context that they would have. And so, I don't want to... I'm not a violent person, but it's like, maybe I would have been one of the people stabbing him in, too. It's like, dude, we, we fucking hate these motherfuckers. Like, yeah. we, and and also, we don't... Although, it, you can't... I was going to say, like, we don't understand the the we don't understand the ramifications of not letting them on the other side of the wall. But in fact, at that point they do. You yeah, got right. So you can't, you can't really say that, but it is hard because you want, John is a good person. It's just, these are dark times. And I I love the, the hard home scene for a lot of different reasons. Cause we meet some cool factions, like some characters that seem like they're going to introduce like that woman chieftain, sure. you know, you feel like, Oh, this is going to become like a character. And then they wipe them all out. And there are a few things I want to say about hard home. First of all, I love that scene when all the when the, the the silhouetted scene of the four kings or whatever oh, they are. I don't so know they're the leaders. It's awesome. It reminds me a lot of that sweet silhouette scene of the enemies in Death Stranding, mm. the uh, PlayStation four game. And I love that. And I love how the enemies come over the the hill and just fall and then wake up and cut. Co- and I was kind of hoping like I would have done this a little differently. I don't know if it's like this in the book or whatever, but. They stop at the water's edge, which I think is weird. And what I would have liked for, to have happened is, like, all of the people there just killed themselves, all going after them, even in the boats, like, just going into the water and dying. Right. Like, drowning and dying. And these, the White Walkers basically showing, like, we don't even need these people anyway. Like, and this is, like, they're so ferocious. They're just going to chase you no matter what, even if it kills them. I would have liked that. Like, it felt a little weird that they all, I like how he revives them all. It's sweet. Oh God, but then it would have been so cool good. if they all just ran at the water and basically all just committed suicide and and they were and maybe just the leaders were left i would have liked that visual yeah i
2: could see that sure
1: but i mean it, it does show that they're trying to build their army and and do all of the rest i like the visual too of the giant walking into the water oh it's so good he's gonna make it all the way across. to
2: the ships yeah it's, so it's pretty
1: cool. pretty pretty neat so yeah i like that scene i like those scenes seeing getting over there and like yeah like you said the proof's in the pudding now there were a lot of different rumors about what works and what happens and oh well you know, Samwell killed him with the, the, the obsidian and this and that. But like they, everyone saw him kill one of their lieutenants with the Valerian steel. So now we know that works and everyone saw them turn. So like you said, like the, the, the secret's out. It's not like it's not a series of rumors and murmurs anymore. And now it's reviving in everyone. I think this idea of like, well, that's why we built this wall to begin with. And and we've said throughout the different episodes that one of the fun things about the the, the history of the of this fictional world is that it's been so long since there's been tragedy like this that no one even believes or understands perhaps why they even do this shit anymore. Like we find out Stannis says that there are 19 castles on the wall because he says at one point yep. that they can staff all of them when I win or whatever. And only two of them have anyone in it. Like no one takes it. You would think that it would be taken very seriously, but it's not. And that, that just reinforces it, which is pretty cool.
2: It's so cool. And, you know, yeah. at, the, at the center of this whole thing is not just this enemy, this undefeatable enemy, but again, like you said, this the idea of having to come together with your lifelong enemies, you know, centuries in some cases of grudges and bad blood. And what is it going to take to form this alliance and how hard that would actually be, you know, to embrace this new level of thinking to unite against this common enemy and put aside your differences and years and, and, tens of years and decades and decades of animosity it's really i love that be, that humanity being at the center of this conflict and we're still wondering like what is it going to take you know some people in their wisdom know that that's an inevitability and some people are just kind of clinging to the old ideas still and how lo- how much longer would that last
1: yeah yeah the one of the last things that i want to talk about anyway is uh princess shireen which we, we had brought up earlier and she's sacrificed the new sacrifice to the Lord of Light. She has the king's blood in her, and they cast some blood magic, I guess, to try to better their situation after the, the Boltons successfully sabotage them. It's truly unbelievable. Like it's a, actually, the screaming is like so blood-curdling. And I was imagining, obviously the mom commits suicide, but you can imagine thinking at that time, like, I'll never forget that scream of my daughter burning at a pyre. Because some crazy priestess told me to do it, but it shows again just how insane Stannis is. Just wanted to acknowledge that scene because I, I think it's a, a powerful scene and it's important because Stannis loses a bunch of his men because of it. Yeah, like um, half. Yeah, like and like that's too much even for these guys that have fought alongside him. So it's a totally insane move that costs him everything. Like he just goes too far, and uh, I'm wondering if you have anything to add about Princess Shireen and that whole thing. It's sad, and as you said, that's why they send davos away for sure
2: oh i think so right that has to be part of the strategy because davos isn't having that and you know he's even advocating for lady Barathe- baratheon Brathian and shireen to be brought to safety before they invade winterfell and everything like that yeah shireen the good man it's so sad to see the character who just wanted her dad's love you know and to be driven to such a frenzy to sacrifice her like the only thing that was probably good in his life to be and to be sacrificed and everything coming to a head as a result of that you know Lady Baratheon finally waking up but killing herself Stannis realizing he was wrong 50% of the men abandoning Stannis and then even the Red Priestess you know even Melisandra saw saw the errors in in that it went too far and leaves as well because she knows what the fallout's going to be it's so sad and you know they don't pull any punches with the scene either i mean she's brought by a couple of soldiers to the funeral pyre to the fire pit and she's screaming and screaming for her dad and the dad shows up and he knows and that only adds insult to injury it's really harsh and ah, one of the one of the saddest things because and davos really loved her and we love davos so that for us as an audience we're like oh and, and what is the reaction going to be when shit hits the, you know, when he finds out,
1: right. right? Yeah. She, and he carves her that little stag yeah, that I think she carries with her to the fire. Yes. And so it becomes a flaming stag, which is a so sad. nice little visual. Yeah, it is sad. The last thing that I wanted to talk about and I can throw it over to you afterwards, if there's anything we missed is, uh we have to talk about Bran or the lack thereof. Mm. Quantum Radish wrote into us and said, good afternoon, brothers M. <laughs> Yo. After listening to last week's episode, I couldn't agree more about Bran's storyline in season four. It was always a drag. Thankfully, he is completely removed from season five. I actually didn't even notice this until my second viewing of the show. So yeah, he's conspicuously absent, and I don't mind it. It's not that I, I don't like Bran. I think he's a fine character. It's just in a in a season where things are too rushed, I couldn't even even imagine if they dedicated the requisite what hour, sure, forty five minutes to think. him. Yeah. I, yeah, I just feel like that would to have just been a huge disservice to the rest of the story that I think is already deserved by the rapidity in which it moves. So that's obviously a choice. Like I just couldn't imagine that the book just doesn't talk about Bran. And so I like this though, but but it is important. I don't want to undercut what the importance of it. It's like Bran, if you care about the mythos going on with the white walkers and what the hell's going on here and the first men and the andals and all this random ass shit whatever it is. Yeah. It's like, he's kind of the answer to that. But my thing is, is that I don't really need to know. That's not what makes it interesting. It's like this foreboding and unknown situation. In fact, Samwell's the one going into mm. all the different books and wants to go to Old Town to become a Meister so he can start reading more. Like all the answers are there for them to discover. I don't know that we have to have like this very literal metaphysical experience with Brand to understand all that there is to understand about the enemies. And I know that that is kind of the point, and I guess we'll get back there, but I don't know. I, I, I didn't miss it. I, I felt like it It's it was fine being not there, and if they never brought it back, it would have been weird, but it would have been like, okay, well, we're fine with this. Yeah. What do you think about Bran's absence?
2: Yeah, I mean, it is a little egregious to leave a main part out or a main path out for an entire season, so we haven't seen Bran and his and Hodor and them for 10 plus hours now, but I agree with you. Squeezing in another branching path would have been a bridge too far. It just would have been too much and maybe it's forgivable. I mean, maybe we see Bran and his ilk pretty early in Season 6, Would make which would make it a little better if they keep ignoring it for episode after episode. I'm not sure how well that works. But if, if you've seen the series before, you know Bran will play a big part. So he'll certainly be back with Hodor and Osha. That's the other thing. Osha and Recon and, and, and them are, they're two separate parties right. So what's going on with them as well? We haven't tuned back in with that with that part of Brand's party either. So there is a lot to catch up on. But I think yeah, I think trying to wedge it in would have been too much.
1: Yeah, I agree. I'm, I think this was the right creative decision. And as we move into season six, I guess we'll see how it all turns out. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't discuss?
2: No, I mean we John's death, right? How is that gonna How's that gonna pan out? I honestly don't remember. So I'm excited to see season six. And then, of course, Daenerys captured by a big Dothraki horde. That's a, right. I forgot right? About that. A right, a Khal Drogo like horde. I mean, a big tribe.
1: Dothraki. That's the name I was looking for. Yeah, I, I wrote Drogo like ride. <laughs> well, that's what it is.
2: Yeah. And Drogon. You know, she's kind of hanging with Drogon when when she's set out set upon by this Dothraki horde, and that's how it ends with her. So, what's going to happen? And uh, Dario and um, what's his name in search? right oh yeah jorah and jorah Dora. in search yeah. of her to go go see if they could find their gal their gal their khaleesi
1: and of course loris and marjorie and yeah prison still, still imprisoned but the, the uh i was gonna call him the giant sparrow but that's not it that's a studio the, game studio.
2: <laughs> the high sparrow
1: the high sparrow mr and, jonathan
2: um, price and of mr. course jonathan. as you said i think you mentioned it right call sam's off to the citadel sam gilly baby sam He's yep, going to realize his potential as a Meister. He's going to stop pretending right. he's a warrior. He's going to do some good. And he does do some good. I, I do remember this character, Sam. Sam. Oh, Sam. Sam. <laughs> it's so funny that both stories have a Sam. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, but uh, I think, yeah, man. I mean, look. I mean, oh, and we lost Jano Slint, right? John that's assassinates right. him up at the wall. What did you make of that scene when. Janos, we've known him from King's Landing. Tyrion is the one who banished him there in the first place. Yeah, he sucks. Terrible character. Hateable, detestable. But he's begging for his life. Right, right, right. Begging for mercy. Could Jon just not stomach the cowardice? Or was that anger?
1: I think it was... I invoked... uh, Everything about it invoked the scene very early in season one Mm. when Ned executes that dude just in the middle of the field you remember that yes and they're, and they're all on horses yep. i feel like and he says something i think to them at that point like you got to do what you got to do kind of shit and i think he was kind of trying to just understand that, that they had to do what they had to do you
2: gotta be the one to i thought to it was scream.
1: interesting that that janos says something along the lines of i've always been scared yeah and i mean like he really, it that's like a really real far that's a that's a real powerful line yeah you know like and he's coming dies game. like a coward which is why you just don't want to die like that you why know why like would they, he even they, push it it's sad in a way because it's like I've always been scared It's like yeah I'm sure you have been dude you, you're but it's uh, it's interesting yeah. he refuses to go to that castle so yeah that's that's an interesting scene but I think shows Jon Snow's not you would expect we all expected Jon Snow was going to not kill him
2: yes right? so to actually maybe that's part be of merciful it. right and he doesn't so,
1: and so Stannis likes it too.
2: Stannis is like yeah
1: yeah he's like the, he, oh my god Stannis loves it he has no <laughs> idea what's going on but he loves it <laughs> All right, well, we'll get into season six in the coming weeks. I'm looking forward to it. I think at this point, I think season six is 10 episodes, but I think seven and eight are not 10 episodes. So we're eight's at, these definitely are actually be, not. Yeah, I, I think eight seven. was like seven. I, this is when they start making things up, I think. So <laughs> not that it's all made up, but it would be interesting. By the way, I mean, we can kind of cap with this. It's it's time stamping us a little bit. But did you see the trailer or any of the stuff for the House of Dragons have, spinoff? Yes. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think of that?
2: Um, it's too early to judge. I don't know. I like yeah. the way the Targaryens look. It's everything we heard with the golden blonde hair, and they seem to have a very distinctive aesthetic to that house. And I like that there's, you know, they show the other houses, and um, whether it's, I think it's Valeria, right? That one of the other key houses back then. It was different then, right?
1: right. Yeah, because we see Valeria abandoned, and yes, in this but they season. were at the
2: height of their power then,
1: right? So it's Yeah, I'm so curious about that. Like I'm so curious what happened there. They they again they use they use that term the doom. I don't know if that's like the stone men, because they, yeah, they the that stone men are there. I, I yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Good. It's point. interesting. Yeah.
2: What do you think? How do you how do you think it looks so far based on the show
1: It looks cool. Yeah, I think it's too early to tell. I I kind of I implicitly just trust everything HBO does. Not everything that they do is for me, but it's always of a very high quality. They sure. very typically miss. And I don't think that they really run anything into the ground or they 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 tend to treat things with a little bit more care. I mean, look at what they could have done with The Sopranos all these years. Look what they could have done with shows like Oz or The Wire sure. or whatever. Even stuff like, I, you know, I don't know if they could command them to come back in any way. Financially, I'm sure they could. But even True Detective, oh, right? Man. Season one. I know that there's like some stuff with season three. I don't didn't see any of that, but yeah, yeah. In connecting it. But it was, it was pretty good. But, like, I just don't think that they ever really push things too far or very rarely do. So if they feel like there's a story here worth exploring, I think that's cool. I just think it's frustrating for a lot of people with this percolating, with Elden Ring having just come out. It's like George Martin is doing all these things except finishing his books. And I, I, it is funny, but I understand people being like, what are you doing, dude? Like, I think there are a lot of people I think that expect that he has basically embraced this idea that I think happened to the wheel of time and some other book series where he's not going to finish it. Oh, like see, someone else is going to tragic, do it. you know, like where, but I guess other authors have finished a couple of these long running series and yeah. have, and it's been good. And maybe he can even be give, you know, be giving them instructions or whatever. But I just, I want to see, I think a lot of people are eager, especially as we got now get into this more nebulous made up space as it were like, what are your intentions? here? Yeah. Like what, what didn't we get you kind of screwed us out of it mm-hmm. but it's the george lucas conundrum where it's like well this came from your mind i mean yeah we wouldn't have it without you so we it's hard to be too mad at you sure but well, you kind of drop the ball yeah i, mean, I don't know wh- i don't know what you're doing I, I don't know like even if you had a ghostwriter do it at this point i don't know what you think you're doing uh, that's yeah. my whole thing is like that's my whole thing is i don't know what you think you're doing like what <laughs> You know, as a creator and as a, I, you're a free man, and I know he just wants to do his own thing, but don't say that the money and the situation doesn't, can't change a person because I think a lot of that happened to him. You know? Yeah. They, I think that's lazy a big now, To be equation. honest.
2: It's true. I think you're right, Kyle. I think it's complicated when it comes to something like this because you take the hunger out of the equation, right? He's certainly not a hungry man, and I'm not making fat jokes, but. No, no, I, I agree. Yeah. Extremely successful and will set for life already. So you know, what's the what's the motivation? And I think there's a lot of that, you know, perhaps fearing messing up the books like everybody thinks the show is messed up with season eight and sort of living with the, sh- the shadow of that, you know, the cloud, dark cloud hanging over your head for that potential. I don't know. I mean, there's probably a lot to it, but it would really be tragic if he went to his grave someday and didn't fit. Because what does he have, two left? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's two And left. I think
1: he like has released... Like some chapters, okay. Oh, from one of these books. Weird. Um, you know what? That's strange. Hold on a second. Game of Thrones books wiki. A Game of Thrones, uh, is a novel for okay. Oh, followed by a Clash of Kings series, A Song of Fire and Ice. Okay, so oh, wow, there's some spoilers in here. I gotta see. <laughs> Gotta move quick. Okay. So, Game of Thrones was the first book that was 96. Then, Clash of Kings was 99. Storm of Swords was 2000. Feast for Crows was 2005. Dance with Dragons, which was this last one, was 2011. So, that was before the show even came out. Yes. And then, The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring are the next ones. Okay. And they've both are unreleased. The Winds of Winter. It's
2: longer than I thought. 96 it started?
1: It says in April of 2011, shortly before the publication of A Dance with Dragons, which took him six years to write, Martin hoped that the last two books would go a little quicker than this one and estimated it would take three years to finish the next one at a good pace. In October 2012, 400 pages of the sixth novel had been written. In 2013, he had written a quarter of the book. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just goes on and on. There's like thousands of words about these. Wow. it's about, known- So that's
2: known. That's common. That's uh, public information. He says in an interview published
1: in January 2020, Martin said... That while he was still working on The Winds of Winter, his primary focus, he also continues working on a TV adaptation of the science fiction novel, Who Fears Death, for which he agreed to be the executive producer in 2017. Oh. In March and April of 2020, Martin stated that he was writing The Winds of Winter every day. In February 2021, Martin said he had written hundreds and hundreds of pages of The Wind of Winter in 2020, but that even though it had been the most productive year with regards to The Winds of Winter, he still had hundreds of pages to write. Although he was hopeful of finishing in 2021, he did not want to make any predictions. In March 2022, Martin stated that he had made less progress in 2021 than in 2020, oh, <laughs> but that emphasized that less well. is not none. It's like, oh, oh my God. Well,
2: he's given us time to catch up. Maybe he's doing it for us. Us too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm excited. I am excited to uh, to read it. I it really is, do want to
2: read them. I honestly do. It is do. interesting.
1: He's still writing some other stuff, I guess. I don't know, man. I don't know. I mean, and like he, I said, he wrote, or like, I don't know who, who knows what he really did with Elden Ring, but
2: yeah, it, yeah, 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 yeah he's involved with that in how so big of too, a part so. he had to play and all that yeah it's interesting i you know and uh, he can't i obviously he can't ignore that tv money he's working on this other tv series and stuff
1: yeah it's just crazy yeah, man I, I, like his yeah, his I writing is it. just falling off completely like he he I, I know that one of the things he wanted to do and i'm seeing this here in his in his bibliography is just yeah. i know he wanted to write a lot of the like supplemental stuff too like okay. the dictionary or not the encyclopedias and all that his kind of stuff I, and so i know shit. right right and I think that that's kind of what he was focusing on. I think he did a couple of novellas here as well. So who the fuck knows? Yeah. And then there's a reference book and novella collection called Fire and Blood that he released in 2018 about the house, the history of House Targaryen. Oh, so it's like, so I guess he's doing this other shit. I don't so know. He's but, placating but,
2: the fans by peppering them with. Occasional but refusing, but stuff. refusing
1: to finish the sixth book, the, nonetheless, thing they the really seventh. Not. Yeah. So. All right, Dave. Well, let's end every episode, or let, let's end this episode of Knockback. let we do every episode with a dad joke.
2: All right, here we go. Kyle, a guy walks into a bar, and there's a horse serving drinks. The horse asks, "What are you staring at? Haven't you ever seen a horse tending bar?" The guy says, "It's not that. I just never thought the parrot would sell the place." <laughs>
1: Where'd you steal that one from?
2: I don't know it's some really bad dad joke website that I haven't stumbled upon before. There's a lot of there's a lot of them like this. Kind of like I don't long, <laughs> I guess this one <laughs> long for a very uh, insignificant payoff, which I think is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. That's a funny model for a joke. I think. I agree. So expect more of these.
1: Well, well done. Uh, thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support of all things knockback. Last Stand Media on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash. Last Stand Media for early ad-free access to this show. If you listen to us on iTunes, please leave us nice reviews there. Subscribe to us on YouTube for those of you that like to watch the shows. Prefer to, uh, to listen to it. Most of you listen, but some of you like to watch. Come watch. Come watch, Boyer. Weirdos. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next time for more Knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Casual Misfits Gaming, Andrew Morgan, Steven Needer, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SL FMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vaders, Tom Quinn, Steven Innerfield, Forkboy Gaming, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Fucking Mayo, Logan Byford, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Nock, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Nuclear Prostate, Jonas Young, Sorta of Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Catch, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Christian. R, Jad Rita, Benjamin Muma, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Hallen-Rui, Tyler Watkins, Michael Buffel, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Halsey, Nuke Dukem, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, HTrons, Antonio C, Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Silvinsky, Jordan Gale of Fortuna, John Zeal, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadeth Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Flowers, Kinnam, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Cruxes, Chris Moore, Caswell, Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, Daryl Rodriguez, Damon W., Fat Houdini, Richter86, Steve Hodge, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto24, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chand, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algaret, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Anderton, Nathan R, Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton Kay, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixie, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, The Rose Experience, and Grizzled Veterans Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gondhollager, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Brent Linquist, David I. Colucci, Paul Joyce, Passive Pixels, Edwin Castillo, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Scarson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, and Jonathan Rice.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie.